Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mega Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer! Say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we're back. We are, this is the penultimate episode of Netflix's Queen's Gambit. We're in episode six. Episode seven is the last one. We have trudged our way through it. You are now a chess master, I believe. You're ranking 1080, I believe. Uh, about to break 2,000. Uh, candidate master give me time give me time i'm working there man um i did not quite dive into the chess um strategy part of this like i if you go back and listen to episode one i was well on my way and then completely pumped the brakes so all of the chess strategies um scenes i just completely have blown over but i have enjoyed going through this show with you um we've had some good episodes up till now we have a i would say very interesting episode right now um ahead of us episode six what is it adjournment is it the title something like yeah, that yeah adjournment which i think is the um is the, break the chess in the... word for a break in a tournament right you yeah. have a break day or something like that which is a very accurate word to summarize what this episode kind of serves as if we're building to a turn we're building up to a tournament it occurs and then our player goes on break for a while where she kind of you know i would say detox but that's the exact opposite of what she's doing from the chess. she's yeah, at least detoxing detox. from the chess world Certainly is not detoxing. Um, okay, well, before we get going um, on the episode, is there anything you would like to plug from a sister podcast we do called Mangum Reads? Uh, Mangum Reads, we have finished up the Agatha Awards for Cozy Mysteries and are now deciding that having read, you know, what people are now viewing as the legacy carried on of Agatha Christie, let's go back to the source and read some proper Agatha Christie, which we all are looking forward to. We're going to have a blast reading with our listeners. Um on our other sister one to that, Pottering Around, we are going through the fourth book in the Harry Potter series, The Goblet of Fire, which I think we're all rapidly realizing, well, BJ and I have not read it before, is our favorite of the Harry Potter series, matching Sarah in that regard. Uh, and on our chapter-by-chapter chapter recap, we have segments, we have a lot of fun, and we hope people enjoy listening to it. Check out Mangum Reads, check out Pottery Around, both really good podcasts. Also, check out Mangum Watches. We do a movie review podcast here on the Mangum Talks podcast channel, and the latest one we did was a Austrian horror movie called Goodnight Mommy, which was uh, a very interesting movie, and an even more, I would say, shout out to us, Spencer, an even more interesting conversation. Of course, of course. I, I, I was thoroughly amused. I had no idea what your what your thoughts on that film were going to be based on your original text. I wasn't sure you were going to finish it, because there's been a few things in the past that you got about 10, 20 the way through and went, I'm done. I will read the Wikipedia page and stop. But I would say, in fairness, you probably liked this the best of the of, of, of the four of us that watched it. I did. I rated it the highest. And I will say that, you know, a lot of times you watch a good movie and it's a good movie, right? But a good movie doesn't necessarily dictate a good conversation. Same thing mm -hmm. with a bad movie. This was, you could call it a good movie, you could call it a bad movie. I don't think anybody could argue with the fact that it is a movie you can talk about. So it, it set up very well for a good podcast. I enjoyed doing that one. So check it out on Mangum Watches. But the issue at hand here today is episode six of Netflix's Queen Gambit, Adjournment. We will start with the recap. I will lead the recap. We will go to best line of the episode, best scene of the episode, and then we will end on Spencer's Wikipedia spiral of the episode, which is my favorite thing I do each week. I am looking forward to see what Spencer has for us this episode, but we will start with the recap. Okay, the this episode starts with what we're starting. We're starting to get sort of a, a pattern here with these episodes. They start with what seems to be some sort of mental flashback maybe that's repetitive maybe just a flashback mm. of beth hearing her mother tell her something 
-hmm. At least that's what I interpret these as being. They, they have not really explained what these scenes are, but I tend to think they're memories that Beth has of her birth mother. Spencer, do you agree? I agree. It seems to be the, the kind of memories, the kind of lessons that have stuck with her that she keeps, flat, that she, as you said, flashing back to over the course of her life. They're little bits of wisdom that seem to have wrapped up in Beth's consciousness, but not necessarily in a positive way. They're bits of her mom's paranoia that are bleeding into her that seem to be causing problems for her going forward. Yeah, I agree. And this one starts with Beth's mom telling her uh, that men are going to come around. They're going to want to teach things. Doesn't make them any smarter. It makes them feel bigger. You just let them blow by and do what you like. Quote, it takes a strong woman to stay by herself in a world where people will settle for anything just to say they have something. Um, yeah. and it, Yeah. Um, I, I can understand the mindset of that. I can understand the need to have a fierce degree of independence to be able to prosper, particularly from her. I mean, particularly from correctly of her mom, she was very high level academia, like mathematics, right? Like yeah, almost a so, research level mathematics. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Um, so yeah, I mean, it kind of it kind of jives with what we know of her mother, right? Which is where she's had to. Um, I guess find her own way, right? Find she her own way in academia. In an intensely male-dominated field, but also dealing with seemingly very sincere, serious, crippling, diagnosable-worthy paranoia, among other things, that eventually drove her to commit suicide. So it's a philosophy that allowed her mom to prosper and, prosper and survive, but it also denied her any degree of support network, which bleeds into some difficulty that uh, we see Beth, or even as a... Jojen points out in this episode, Americans have in terms of asking how the people can help and relying on other people to succeed. Yep. Yeah, into the scene, mom gets her a blanket and says, so you never forget who you are. Cut to Beth in a car with Jojen Reed in the house, my man, Benny Watts. And they are singing Stop Your Sobbing by the Kinks. I was wondering when the Kinks were going to make an appearance on the show, Spencer. Finally got the Kinks. Uh, very Beth. apropos song for Beth and where she's yeah, at. Just life, a bit. Um, Beth, two... Beth seems to me like a Kinks fan. These two are driving straight from Ohio to New York City, right? Correct. The so, uh, armpit uh, of America up to uh, America's number one city. Why do you just keep dunking on our potential demographics? We discussed this. We're trying to appeal to the blue-collar everyman in oh, America oops. now. <laughs> Don't they call themselves the armpit of America? <laughs> they do. It's the weirdest damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're in a very interesting um, uh, road trip. Their road trips, Spencer, are not like our road trips, apparently. The one person doesn't just badger the other about personal information. Um, <laughs> no, no. There's this much more chess focus. That's the way they go about this. He is badgering her in his own way. But she seems, you know, to be they seem to be working well off each other. They're doing yeah, the kind it. of thing that we would never do, of where they're basically playing chess games orally the entire drive. Yeah, that, if you've ever listened to some of our sister podcasts, we make the joke all the time. When Spencer and I do road trips, traditionally, I have just pestered him about his personal life until he slips up, divulges information that he maybe wasn't planning on, and then I hold that against him for years to come. Let's uh, call back to that joke. But yeah, to the road trip that we're watching here, they're reciting stress strategy. They're challenging each other with various move combinations. As they go, Benny points out Beth is playing the Levenfish. So we have another reference to the eleven fish strategy, which mm -hmm. Benny doesn't like. Benny hates the eleven fish, apparently. Then Beth is learning Russian. So um, they eventually get to the end of this road trip. I will say that they, I would not, I would not say that they spared a lot of expenses with this show. I think this was a show that Netflix threw some money at, right? I think sure. they realized they had something here. 
I will say that they did not throw a lot of money at this road trip. This was the most green screen. This looked like like the Seinfeld episodes where Jerry and George oh, are in the car and it's a clearly a green screen. Like this, they just it's like they it's like they waited till the very end of filming to do this road trip scene and they just ran out of money. Like they're just done with the budget. It, it, it's oh, yeah, that is a fun thing to ponder about. In post, they realize, huh? We just kind of yada yada the getting there from Ohio to New York. Do we want to add a scene in there of how they got there? It's like, fine, record some dialogue. We'll place it on place it on some footage. It'll be great. It really looks cheap. Um, so they get to New York, and Benny has a great parking space. I might add, right in front of the building. Spencer, is this how it was in New York in the '60s? Do we know? I mean, did people could people just park out in front of their buildings? Because I have some friends in New York City. I will tell you that is not the case now. Last time I parked in New York City, I pulled up to a garage that was like a five-store garage where they just put your car into it and it just electronically moves it up into some distant apparatus that your cars are stored in. And that's the closest thing I found to a good parking job. And since I only had to walk three blocks from that to where I didn't need it to go. He parked right out front of his door. Uh, better not, parking space than, than living space, I would say. Not He um, didn't park legally, as we see over the course of this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, that, but, uh, they, yeah, it's a good point. Um, but Beth starts to go upstairs as if to, she's going... To a gorgeous brownstone. Nice. Yeah, big two-story townhome type deal. Benny corrects her and says, nope, mine is over here. It is a door to a basement apartment. Which about halfway of, the, of her walking down that staircase, she had that honest to God thought that we all do at a certain point of Benny. I'm, are you taking me to murder me? Is this, is, is, I could totally die here, and no one would hear my screams. And also, yeah. the walls feel of urine. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a great space, but I will say that Benny's done what he can with it considering he's a single guy and all he cares about is chess because uh when you get in there you see that it's a it's a neat space he's mm-hmm. got what he needs it's very uh spartan in that way but there are chess boards chess magazines chess trophies it is chess everywhere it is functional it is a pl- it, it is a pad essentially of where he can base between for when he uh, for the, the in-between moments when he goes to chess tournaments and also based on current new york real estate that's a lot of space he honestly has that thing would be People would be fighting for that space in this day and age. Yeah, that's true. That would be pretty expensive uh, nowadays. Um, Benny tells Beth where she can hang up her clothes. Benny sets up an air mattress. At first, Beth seems a little unhappy with the accommodation. She expected a couch. But eventually, Beth just says she'll finish pumping up the air mattress. I will say this about this air mattress. It has a foot pump. Now, Which is so um, much better I've had a lot of air mattresses in my day, and I've slept on a lot of air mattresses. I've never seen a foot pump. I, it's always been blow it up. Um, it, it, the cl- yeah, the foot pump is great. And not all of them are even like accommodating to, you know, like the little bicycle pumps that you can go find somewhere to attach to it. A lot of them really just require you to blow your jaw out. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I've practically knocked myself unconscious from trying to inflate one of those damn things before from the amount of effort you have to put into them. So shout foot pump, Benny. definitely Benny quality. Spring in for the foot pump. As Benny walks off, he tells her there's no booze in the apartment. She says, didn't think there would be. I would say that's a theme of the episode. Um, we will get to, to many more conversations about where there is and where there is not booze for Beth. Beth is awakened by sirens in the morning. <laughs> Welcome to New York City. <laughs> Benny gets her a cup of coffee. I will say, Benny, um, getting his um, getting his Jeff Bridges on here. He's got the, the open robe, no shirt on, uh, just walking Casual around. Casual Benny. 
He's uh, this this actor who plays Benny played Jojen in Game of Thrones. Not a bad looking guy, we'll say that. I have said before on this podcast, he reminds me a little of Neil Patrick Harris in that he always looks young. He does have a young looking face. He is a good looking guy. I would not call him particularly muscular. So showing off the chest in this way, I thought was an odd move. It was an odd move, but honestly, seeing him in a more casual dress rather than that weird duster leather hat thing that he's been running with throughout every time we've seen him, he looks more mature in this setting than he did wearing that kind of made-up outfit. Uh, I think maybe oh yeah, the it, duster jacket and the big the big ten gallon hat that made him look all a ten years old. It looked made him look all a ten years old with a fake beard. Now that he's actually dressed more normally, he seems more like an adult, even if you said he does tend young. I thought that 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 looked okay. That uh, the get up looked okay until Beth completely cut cut him down. Hot. See what I did there by saying, "Who's the knife for?" Yeah. And he said, "Protection." And she said, "From who?" I, I felt like that just made him look like he was twelve. Right. Um, that whole conversation. Uh, Benny wants them to start out the day playing Borgov games. So just going back through Borgov's old games, playing them out, talking about them. But Beth says she's hungry. Benny points her to the fridge for some eggs, and then we get one of mini montage very montage heavy episode a lot of this ways, episode yeah. and now a question for you spencer we we have seen some i would say some pretty darn good montages in this show do you think that they relied a little too heavy on the montage in yeah. this episode yeah they yeah, did i and, do too and yeah. none of them were particularly standout montages either they were very just functional it was very just let's condense a lot of events into a into a shorter time frame rather than the artistry we saw in like the prior episode of the uh, montage associated with the uh, tournament in Ohio. Yeah, I felt like it was it bordered on lazy storytelling and I felt like that they some of the montages were stretched um stretched for time. So so maybe they didn't quite have you know, 50 minutes uh, when they were they were editing this but thing and they stretched it a little bit. It also messes messages my understanding of the passage of time. How much time do you think she spends in his apartment before she goes to the tournament in Paris? Do you have a guess? Because I, I'm figuring it's three long. weeks. I figured it was something like that. Because they make it feel like it's all of four days or something, but I don't think that's the accurate impression we're supposed to get out of it. No, I think you say they're. I'm gonna guess a couple weeks. It's not. It's not a month. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think a month. Um, but I don't know. I mean, they, you're right. They they don't really. They don't chronicle time very well. Uh, no. That comes up uh, in a, another very important scene later in the episode that I, that I want to talk to you about. Um, so as they're going uh, the montage, it's Beth learning from Benny. They're replaying various games, playing each other. During the montage, Beth picks up on a mistake one of the strategists made, I guess maybe in a book or in a retelling or something. But she picked up on this sort of mistake that this person made. Um, or maybe it, it probably, let's fairly characterized. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's like one other alternative right. that this person hadn't thought of or something. Um, but either way, Beth has a breakthrough. Benny's impressed. They share a laugh about it. Right. And it seems to be a lot of purpose from Benny with respect to this training is to train her to understand the Russian style of play. That train her in some ways to be boring and appreciate appreciate boring tech, what did you describe it as? Workman style play or something like that? Of where mm -hmm. yep. you you need to understand the technical, you need to understand the nitty-gritty, you need to understand just the rote repetition that actually is going to elevate you from being a natural genius to the best player in the world. Because you're not going to make that leap unless you can f understand how these guys, the real true greats, got there. Yeah. As the montage goes on, we hear a voiceover from Benny. Mm -hmm. Here's the quote: "You haven't done anything like what I'm making you do now." 
We're playing serious chess, workmanlike chess, chess, kind of chess that is played by the best players in the world, the Soviets. And you know why they're the best players in the world? It's because they play together as a team, especially during adjournments. They help each other out. As Americans, we work alone because we're all such individualists. We don't like to let anyone help us. Um, this this gets to a point that I tried to make a couple episodes ago. Um, where the first I think first time we're introduced to this in the show is with Harry Beltic. And it's the sense of, you know, the chess world helps each other, right? And, and Benny is doing this too. And, and he's recognized that Beth is better than he is. And that if Americans are going to beat the Soviets, that he, you know, you have to pick the, the, the strongest one and everybody's got to come together and help that person. Yeah. And that's what he's doing here. So shout out to Benny for that. Benny, very American here. Uh, I'm, I know he, doesn't get, he doesn't get USA. credit for it, but yeah, but what a patriot. Um, cut to uh, Beth and Benny. Beth, you're helping me now. Um, Benny comments that it looks like he's putting her to sleep. Beth says she probably should go to sleep. And he says, well, you want to miss out on fun? Beth, what fun? <laughs> Keyword for Beth there. And there's a knock at the door. In comes two very unfortunately named individuals, Hilton Wexler and Grandmaster Arthur Levertov. Not great Oof. names. Not great names. Good guys. Huh. Very skilled. Not great names. Apropos of the chess world, still bad names. <laughs> We've gone um, through so many bad names in, in our chess analysis of this thing. Awful. They recognize her as the new champ. They do come in and cut this. The champ is here. They give it the champ treatment. In comes another woman, a lady named Cleo, who has a Parisian accent, I believe. Uh, Beth is asked if she does problems from the guys. Uh, I always found them irrelevant. Positions that never come up in actual games. So this... Um, I think that response is a, it, it belies her actual skill, right? Because I think that they probably would hear that answer and think, my God, what, what JV fucking person is this that doesn't realize, you know, that it's almost like proofing in geometry, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, that this, the, the, it, the value is in the process right. uh, of learning the proof, of learning the, the problem. It's, it's not necessarily that we're playing a game right now, Beth, but they are patient with her yeah. and they sit her down and they show her one of these problems. Cleo immediately asks where the glasses are. Beth solves it very fast, by the way. <laughs> Head spinningly fast in this room. They're floored. Because um, these are, as you said, one is a grandmaster. The other one is presumably also, you know, top, top field U.S. chess uh, as well. And all of them set up this problem as like, this is going to be a goodwill hunting issue. Maybe you'll solve it at the end of the semester kind of deal. And she just does it in like eight seconds flat and is ready to go make dinner. Yeah, it was very fast, very impressive. Cleo asks if Beth wants a drink. Beth looks at Benny, hesitates, shimmy shake. That's going to be a no for me. Good for her. Beth goes to help set up the food. While they're setting up the food, Cleo says she became mesmerized by Benny. So Benny gets around, my man Benny Watts. He does. Um, Beth asks her what she does. She says she's a model. A model. I didn't know what she, be, I'm being completely honest with you, but I did not know what she was talking about when she first started saying she was a Medell. Your ultimate, your, the, your ultimate enemy, sir, a Parisian accent. It I was throws like, you what? Off. I, I actually, and I had the subtitles on and I had to go back and I saw the subtitles said, Medell, I'm a Medell. Beth says it must be exciting. Cleo says it's insepid. I think that's the word she, she the, threw on it. This is the most stereotypical French stand-in person I have ever seen. She's just the embodiment of both French appearance, French style, but also French philosophy. She goes yeah, about I this. I know. It's like you want to like, 
you know how to do like wrestling announcements for you know like is that so and so's music like for this one it's like is that the little devil on Beth's shoulders oh, music yeah. because that's really the whole point of the character right yeah <laughs> the last thing that Beth needs is a is a focused on the mom is, is that fun mix between a person who lives just entirely in the moment but also with an undercurrent of nihilism that nothing matters so you have to enjoy the moment that's the last philosophy Beth needs to really prosper in this world Cleo then explains that she lives all over Spencer. Every no real day. home. Sometimes just yeah, lives sometimes all over. Yeah, very, very standard answer, obviously. Uh, Cleo goes on to explain that Beth could never be a model. Models are empty creatures, and Beth is much too smart. So Beth immediately is taken aback by the you could not be a model, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But then I think that she, Cleo comes around by explaining that she's much too smart to be a model. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if all that's just bullshit or not. I don't really know. Um, I do know that if I was in that room, um, I would have given this Cleo lady about 10 seconds of my attention before I completely started ignoring her well, <laughs> and just assumed she could add no value to my life because she it, seems an empty vehicle. Well, it seems like Cleo just has a, a certain measure of self-loathing <laughs> that's going on inside of her of where, you know, yeah, she... Yeah. She, she's immediately dismissing her own profession and presume, presumably herself with it. And while at the same time saying that she met these guys when they intervened to prevent her from committing suicide. This is a person who's got a whole mess of issues that she's trying to put a pretty bow on as she just goes through her life. Eh, we've met a few of those in this series. Beth walks back over and Benny proposes a simultaneous. Spencer, if I'd have paused it right there, did you know what a simultaneous was? Uh, you know, I probably could have thought through it, but in that moment, I was assuming it was dirtier than it was. <laughs> oh, no, that's what I was looking at. So, I, was like, I think Beth, Beth is too, because Beth is looking at him, and they're all just leering these little grins at her. He's like, I didn't sign on for this. I didn't sign on for this. Simultaneous. I thought, uh-oh, like, boop, pause it. Like, that's how you could find out where everybody's mind is in the room, right? Pause the show right then. Okay, let's go around the room. Yeah, Paul, what do you think Paul. <laughs> Um, it, Benny it, explains that they, wait this isn't HBO right sorry now I understand <laughs> oh hold on Netflix alright yeah I don't know uh, yeah Benny explains that they have enough boards okay alright so they're just mm-hmm. meaning let's play Beth against the room in simultaneous games mm-hmm. uh, Beth even, says even better before they, before they fully explain they ask Cleo to join which just adds to the transaction we're pondering that's true but then she says I don't know the rules yeah <laughs> happens uh, kind of funny that the, the the model doesn't know the rules to chess beth says okay one of them suggests um uh what is it what is they what do they suggest first I one of them suggests something to I, I've, I've messed up my notes here but one of them suggests something it's like control chess or something like that and beth says no let's play speed chess mm-hmm. so i think that she proposed like or they proposed something like um you know, like a, some sort of time limit. And I think that Beth's proposal back was, no, let's let's shorten the time. Let's do the speed chess thing. Mm-hmm. And Benny Watts, my man Benny Watts, giving her a T-bomb. You're not so good at that, remember? Beth says, 10 bucks says I can beat you. Now, doing the conversion here, 1964, it's 80 bucks of today's money. We started at five the last time they played, right? Uh, uh-huh. Beth's upped it to 10. Uh, Benny suggests she might throw the other games uh, and spend all her time on Benny. Benny is a very... Benny does not lack for ego, my main man, Benny Watts. He says, 
Well, if we do that, you're just going to lose all the other games because you, in order to beat me, you have to spend all your time with me. Obviously. Mm. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the ego of this man is pretty spectacular. But he's also fronting. He's also... There's no small amount of ego. I think Claire even calls him out later that, oh, no one loves Benny the way Benny loves Benny or something along those Great lines. Great line. Great line. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, he's also just... They're getting to be buddies. They're getting to be close. And this kind of put-downs is a significant portion of the relationship. We see that kind of friendship a lot in real life. For sure. Beth says, because when he, he suggests you'll throw all the other games and spend all your time on me, Beth uh, counters with a uh, very academic response. What if I kick you in the crotch? Uh, that that draws a giggle. She says, all right, fine. I'll bet 10 on all the other games too. Cut to a montage of them playing chess. And it's George Fame's... Um, classic song i'm not sure this one really hit the the charts in the 60s in the same or at least it's not on all the oldie stations and stuff it certainly hasn't permeated permeated um in our society it's a it's a song called yeah yeah by george fame i've always heard this really, song before i've heard it before and i really like it i've never once heard i think i once one time heard it on the radio in the middle of nowhere picking up an oldie station but it is it didn't it hasn't become part of the like let's play some songs of the 60s and 70s kind right, of lexicon yeah. really yeah, that that's a good way. That's what I was trying to drive at is that when you know, if you get introduced to like an oldies, 60s, 70s catalog, you probably don't hit George Fame, yeah, yeah. So all the kids out there, we obviously do have a big millennial audience. Um, I would charge you, get out on the YouTubes, check out George Fame's Yeah Yeah, it's a very good song. Beth beats them all. Minnie has to pay up this time. Beth wants to do it. What? She wants to do it again. She wants to do it again. Beth keeps winning and keeps wanting to play. Finally she says again and Benny says no. I counted it twice. So I think Benny went two rounds and said, I'm done. Back in Ohio, Beth went at least seven before Benny stopped her. <laughs> it's a demonstration. It's a, it's a showing of a lot of things. For one, it's showing the relative difference that each of them hold money in and the relative importance of money. Where Benny plays to eat. Benny's very much a, I play this because it's my profession and career. Beth, as we've seen before, does not really give much of a shit about the finances and doesn't really give much of a damn, it seems, about where her money is spent, where she throws it away, and how much she has saved up in the bank. Uh, so there's an element of that. It's also Benny, as much as he, we've talked about him being egocentric and everything else, I don't think has anywhere near the amount of easily bruised pride that Beth does. There's also an element of Beth doesn't... Beth's impulse control... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, which Good call. Obviously, obviously, we're going to see big, big examples of this later. But she has struggle with, troubles with her impulse control, so she just wants to keep playing, playing, playing. Benny is able to pump the brakes and say, "No, you know what? Pretty quickly it's time to stop." So they stop, and what did this? She gets, she gets the round of applause after Benny gives her the line. Well, kid, I think you've got it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all very much impressed. It looks like Beth just completely beat everybody. It looks like she went, she went, she gave him a offer, right? She, she beat all of them, right? How? Be- yeah, she definitely. She wiped the floor with them. How believable do we find this based on what we just saw in the last episode? Because, again, it's been like four weeks, and it's possible that she could completely master the world of speed chess during that time. But in my mind, it seems to involve a little bit of willful suspension of disbelief, given how far she's gone between these two data points that we have. Here's my problem, is that, and I, this, this, is, this take, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is coming from someone who knows nothing about the subject matter on which I'm about to give a take. So, you know, caveat there. But... <laughs> It would seem to me that speed chess, more than classical chess, requires actual reps. It would seem to me that you need to play speed chess 
in order to get better at it. I would think classical chess, we have a little bit more time. Gaming out strategy and stuff you can do on your own, and then you can come back and play, and you can be demonstratively better, even though you haven't played a lot of games. Mm -hmm. I would think with speed chess, you need to play a lot of it, and we certainly know she's not been playing a lot of it. Have we seen her play one game of speed chess no, with Benny uh -uh. since that diner that, back then? No. So this took me out of it a little bit. It was like, they want to show that she's gotten so much better, that she's a meteoric rise, that the sky's the limit. Fine. This seemed to be an odd way to do it, given the previous things they've already told us about her style of play and her, where, where she's skilled at. I, yeah. I, I didn't find this perfectly believable. Yeah, I think it's a good call, Spencer. I, I think it's a little not. It's not too believable that he would be that much better than her. That he could beat her seven, eight, nine straight times with no problem, and then come back and now she's whooping him on the other end in the same in the same fashion. Kind of hard to believe. But anyway, we move on, and I think we actually have an answer to the question that you posed earlier about how long that Beth, how long did Beth stay with Benny? Because as Cleo is leaving, Beth says. Uh, Cleo tells Beth she could she should look her up if she's ever in Paris. Beth says, "Will you be in? Will you be there in two weeks?" True. And she, so that gives you an idea that, you know, assuming Beth was maybe there for three or four days before these guys came over. So it's, it's, it's in the two to three week range that she's actually there with Penny. Makes sense. Um, when she asks this of Cleo, Cleo says, oh, who knows? Uh, so I guess Cleo just doesn't. She doesn't make. She's a model, Spencer. She doesn't make plans. Miss, Models I have to make, make my plans. own plans and arrangements. I need to know addresses and things to be able to contact you. This is. We don't work on whimsy and serendipity in the real world. Thank you. So all I can think of when I, I see a character like this um, is this is one day going to be Spencer's client. Like Spencer one day is going to have to represent. I, I don't represent Artis. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> like this. Spencer goes, well, we have a hearing tomorrow at six. Can you be there? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> we shall see we shall see what the winds of fate allow it's like time's just a construct <laughs> or or you can give me a cell phone i can call you that works too right we can do that yeah spencer representing the model it would drive you crazy i'm sure um <laughs> as everyone leaves benny looks a little tipsy and he says no one has done that to me in 15 years again spencer getting to your point how unbelievable it is that she kicked his ass so easily at speed chess but um beth says that um she did it while being sober as a judge as alma would say um i mean spencer you've been around a lot of judges pretty bad pretty it, bad it, it is a stereotype it has a foundation in history and also that has always been one of my favorite expressions and i've I, it's not literally southern but i've heard it more in southern english than i've heard in others in other um american accents I've just known a lot of judges who, who like to partake, so I don't know if it's a it, great uh, saying. <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, it's an accurate saying. It is, certainly. Uh, it's meant to be sarcastic. <laughs> there you go. Benny says, I myself it, am not... Wait a second. Sober as a judge is meant to be sarcastic? I think it is, yeah. It's meant to be mocking the fact that judges have a very profound historical reputation of being utter drunkards. Oh. Huh. I think it's meant to be almost kind of mocking. Well, there you go. Learn something new, ladies and gentlemen. I, I could be wrong, that. but that, that was I, my... I thought sober as a judge was like a judges are like, you know, the arbiter of justice, therefore. But I know a lot of drunk judges, so I do, it never made sense I... to me. But now that makes sense. Um, Benny says, I myself am not sober. They share a moment. It looks like Benny's going to leave. Looks like Benny's going to be the bigger man here. Uh, walk off. Go back into his room. He closes the door. Boop. He comes back out, touches her arm. Do you still like my hair? I... And smash cut. <laughs> They do the deed. Smash cut to, that's the way it's supposed to feel like. 
Yeah, I know. Beth is laying there and says, that's what it's supposed to feel like. Oh, I didn't like that line. <laughs> that is so dunking on Harry so bad. I didn't, I didn't like how she dunked on Harry. And I don't like what it does to a guy who already does not need the ego bar. <laughs> My man, Jojen, Jojen uh, Benny Watts does not need the ego bars. He's, his ego bars are full. Uh, Beth could have kept that one. At but it's a fun mix to how he starts things, too. Because he does the like quintessential arc. The woman vulnerability place, if he grabs her arm right there, that is in all media, the place you grab a woman to just utterly stop her from moving. But he then does it. <laughs> Vin, Vin, stand, uh, stand, I think it's even like on TV terms, standard woman grab place. Um, it's very, it's very funny. You're right. So many times you just touch the, a little bit above locked. the elbow. Boom. And can't, can't move. Anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, freeze all motor functions. But it's interesting too. There's an element of vulnerability in his line too, of where he doesn't like you know immediately lean in to kiss her. He doesn't pull her into the room or anything else. He asks almost innocently, "Do do, do you still like my hair?" It's kind of cute. It's kind of innocent in my, in my view. I mean, I, what you could interpret as being like a little playful bit of flirting, but in my mind, it's almost like he wanted to remind her that she was into him to get it going. Yeah, I don't know what that was. I don't know if that was. Um a line that he uses that I, I don't know if that was like truly like a boyish sort of hey do you still like me type thing um whatever it was it works it, it works well um, and- so that's what it's supposed to feel like from beth and then benny starts his pillow talk which is telling her that she should play the sicilian if, if, <laughs> if, you, if you want to do different kinds of post-coital activities much much more productive and better for your health than say smoking a cigarette just immediately go into chess spiel yeah, and Beth immediately uh, says, well, that's what Borgoff plays. Benny says she shouldn't worry about that. She should play what she's comfortable with. I say this is good advice. Beth clearly wants maybe a little bit more romance here in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so she doesn't seem pleased. Uh, at least that's my read on it. And she goes to sleep. A question we're going to see later, it's going to come up later in her line, line with dialogue, of where Beth says that she's never been that into Benny. Or never loved Benny, I think is the exact line that she says. Is Was she telling the truth to Cleo when she said that? Or was she, in some ways, a little bit jilted by how this interaction played out? When we get there, I'll tell you my thought. Okay. Place a pen on it. Because I do, I do have a take there um, mm-hmm. that I'm ready to debut. Um, so Beth goes to sleep. Cuts to Beth in Paris. Six players, five rounds. Around a day for five days with one day off for adjournment. I think I got all that right. Yes. Uh, we get another shot of Beth showing up to a test chess tournament, walking, power walk from Beth into a chess tournament, luggage in hand. We got That's like the fourth time we've seen this. I love the hotel shots that we get for every one of these damn tournaments. Through shows of it. It's always this massive spiral staircase. Were, the, were these just... Were these. Awesome. Were these huge staircases just endemic in 1960s hotels? Did every hotel have the massive, huge staircase kind of thing? Because we need more of those. Those are great. But I, lo- agree. I love the intro shots of them walking into the hotels. The actual scenes of the tournament that we see, I thought were kind of lackluster. It's another montage that se- it feels a little bit half-assed. They didn't do a great job with the chess scenes here. I will agree. Uh, they skipped over them a lot. Um, and you know what? You, you're on record, Spencer. You, you're an OG with this. You have said your favorite part of the show is the chess matches. So uh, they, they, you got short shrift here. I got let down. So we get a lovely interview to start things off. Yeah, a press conference with Borgov. He's asked how he feels about 
uh, how he's just feeling, and then ha- yeah. how long he plans on. He's getting the LeBron James question. He's getting the Tom Brady question. Showing your age. There's new um, people in this game. Can you really keep yeah. at that speed and level? Yeah, and Borgoff explains that he's feeling good. He's got no plans on stopping. Beth gets a question um, uh, about if she would what she would say to folks who say she's too glamorous to be a chess player. Code word there. Two woman. That's what he really needs. Yes. Beth, I would say it's much easier to play chess without the burdens of an Adam's apple. Good, Good job, line. Beth. Good one. Uh, she asks how she feels about a rematch with Borgoff and Borgoff. Uh, Beth says she feels good. She's got no jet lag, and she plays Borgov's old games. Question back to her, including the one against you in Mexico City. Beth answers in Russian, especially that one. Question, by the way, that's been I've been pondering. How old do you think Borgov is? Like 40s somewhere? 47, 48, something like that. I was, I was going to ask, what side of 50 do you see him on? Um, I, I'm agreeing low, high 40s. He seems a little bit old, at that, particularly during that period, to have that young of a son. But I think that's probably about right. We probably married young, than him. He's a star. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So he, I don't know. He seems in his, in his late 40s, if I had to guess. But cut to one of these chess plane montages. We have liked the chess plane montages in the past. Uh, not crazy about him here. Great shot of the crowd watching, though. They do a little over uh, ceiling shot uh, mm-hmm. where they kind of pan out of the crowd watching the chessboard. I thought that was really well done. Uh, a tense musical piece is pay, playing in the background. Um, it's really melodic, but fast-paced in the match. Beth seems very confident. She does the thing where um, she plays a piece and then she rests her chin on her hands. The confidence uh, move. Whenever we see Beth do that, we know Beth is kicking ace. Mm-hmm. Uh, during this montage, we see Beth get asked for an autograph. So, woo, moving up the moving up the ranks, getting famous there. Cut to the next match. Beth is, again, very confident. Cut to her at night in her hotel room. She's studying with a book and a chessboard. Good for Beth. Mm-hmm. Cut to Beth winning another match. Have we established that Beth is in Paris here? We have established that Beth is in Paris here, yes. Okay, good. Beth is wanting another match. It's true what Benny told her. They don't say check. I did notice this during the montage. Mm-hmm. Um, go back to um, her conversation she had with Benny. I don't think I, I mentioned this, but it, it, he did say to her at one point, you know, in the big tournaments, they don't say check. And she's like, you fucking with me? And he's like, no. And she's like, you sure? And he's I promise I'm not fucking with you. It does seem like they don't say check here. Spencer, in your ex- your research of these chess message, matches, have you ever come across... Um, this 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 factoid do you know if they say check or not I hadn't heard that hadn't come across that and the the rules change over time anyway for major tournament play so it may just have been accurate for that era anyway plus a lot, of, a, a lot of the tournaments i read about you also play your opponent multiple times and it's like you know an average of points that ultimately resolve it doesn't seem like any of the tournaments they have her in she ever plays any of these people more than once it's like one 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 game elimination well i mean that you know like every i'll, I'll draw a parallel because of shocky here I'll draw a parallel to basketball. Like in 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 professional basketball, you play best of seven in the playoffs. And, mm. and you ha- what basketball game movie have you ever seen where they're like, okay, well now we're in game three. Now we're in yeah. game four. They always just do the condensed. one game. Yeah, you got to condense it. I think that's what they're doing here. Yeah. Uh, Beth is uh, go back to the recap. Beth is looking at the scoreboard. She's told that the next day it will be her in Borgolf. Beth is alone studying. Great shot of the ballroom. She's studying in. I think this is one of the last moments. Um, that we get where Beth is really on her shit. Mm-hmm. Beth is locked in. This is the and Beth we want to see, Spencer. If Cleo had not called, this is entirely spitballing, would she have won the tournament that, t- that the next day? Yes. You think so? I think she would have beat him, yeah. 
I'm. I think that's what that we're supposed to believe. Yeah. I think I agree. I think that's what we're supposed to believe. As much as she poo-poo's it later, this is an. I would call it an unforced error, error, but she had a, a hell of a bit of help as a bit of an instigator too. Yeah, Beth is studying. She gets a call from is that Cleo's music? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Cleo is back in the picture. She is the little devil on the shoulder for Beth. Cleo <laughs> says she's downstairs. She asks Beth to go downstairs and have a drink. I'm screaming at the screen. No, Beth, don't do it. Stay in, stay home, Beth. Beth says, no, but maybe tomorrow night. I did, during this back and forth, though, mm-hmm. um, I did have the uh, did have this thing where I was like, well, remember in episode one, she wakes up like drunk in a Paris hotel room and has to run into a chess match? Fuck, I bet this is it. Yunk. Yeah, yeah it, ladies and gentlemen, it is. This woman, Cleo, is so much of a toxic influence on Beth that when Bridget and I watched this episode, we actually pondered out whether she was a KGB agent. It's like, is this woman Red Faction? Is she doing this very intentionally so to ensure Beth loses? Because, man alive, is she playing on as if she almost knows this woman is an addict. But I, yeah, exactly. I will say this though. I, you know, it, it's easy here. Let me let me get through the recap now. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Beth says no. Maybe tomorrow night. Cleo says, "Who knows? I don't know. Time is a construct for the models. Oh. She doesn't know where she's going to be tomorrow. Oh. Um, <laughs> How much are you going to be at the shoot that you get paid for? You have to be there at eight thirty. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? That's who cool. knows? Who knows? She says, "You know, it's a lovely bar. I think I'll go toast your success on my own." So Cleo is. Be- what I I got from this is Cleo basically saying, "Well, I'll be at the bar if you want to. If you want to meet me." Yes. They hang up. Cut to Beth. Damn it, Beth! Don't do this. Beth is going down to the bar, dressed Cleo's up to do it too. Pretty girl has taste. Along with all her gifts, she's complimenting her on her clothes. Beth sits down, says, "Only one drink." Now, uh, I am a betting man, Spencer. You're not really a betting man. I think that right here, when Beth sits down, she says, "It'll be one drink." I don't even think Vegas would take bets on if she's only going to have one drink. Does even Beth believe she's only going to have one drink? Yes. Really? Yeah, Beth, Beth, Beth's an alcoholic. Yeah, she <laughs> yes, this is true. One. She's told herself it's only one. That's how she got downstairs. Yeah. Got- she told she convinced herself it's only one, but she sits down and, you know, Beth can't control herself. So, damn it, our girl, Beth Harmon. She's my, she's my girl. She sits down. She tries Cleo's drink. Going to shock you. She likes it. Um, cut to Beth starting her third drink. We just go from one to three, like bang, bam. Like we that. we go to a growing assembly of glasses that are just on the bar in front of them. And Beth is waxing poetic about how she could live in Paris. I do love this. I the the writing and the acting is very good. How she goes from sort of like very tense, like thank you for complimenting me on my dress. I'm going to sit down and only have one, uh, two, three drinks later. You know, I can live here. You know, I I can live here. It's it's such a great call. She goes, (laughs) we go from apprehensive, uncertain to immediately drunk white girl wanting to move to Paris. Uh, I could just <laughs> be go a transition. to a cafe like every day. It would be yeah. Like, yeah. So. And everybody dresses <laughs> so great and their hair. It's just, it's so much better here. During the conversation, Cleo points out that one of the guys at the bar is looking at her. They have a little back and forth. Um, Beth's like, no, they're looking at you. Cleo, Cleo's like, no, they're looking at you. Uh, all g- Girls everywhere. Um, your your friend Lee is going to help you out here. 
two hot girls at the bar. They're looking at both at of you. They're looking at both of you. Yeah. They're looking at both of you. Not even they're necessarily looking at an individual. There's just this aura of hotness that's in that, car, that corner of the room now. They're staring at the cloud. It's, I've seen this in a lot of media, and I've seen it with girls actually talking to women actually talking oh, my, yeah. in my life. They seem to think, well, we have to figure out who they're looking at. No, no, looking at both of you. Very capable at looking at both of you. Yeah. Um, Cleo asks her if she's ever been in love. Beth says, not Benny. And Cleo says, of course not. No woman can compete with Benny's love for himself. Beth then admits unfair. she loved a guy named Towns. Mm. Here's my thing. So you, you brought this scene up earlier. You asked me, do you think that Beth was telling the truth when she says she wasn't really in love with Benny? I would... 10 I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to fall down I'm going to go on the side of yes she was lying and here's why I think she was lying mm. because she she had to come up with another name of who she actually loved and she reached into her grab bag and pulled out Towns. I don't think she ever loved Towns. That's a crazy name for her to come up with. We saw the interaction with Towns. That's, what's he talking about? I think she was enamored, but I think even she would say in that moment that it was so puppy dog that it'd be harder to call it love necessarily. That she had a crush on a guy that was nice to her at a tournament and it took her pictures in her room. And it was cute. I enjoyed their flirting and their little banter back and forth, but. If she wants to call that love, that's one thing, but it seems a weird way of describing that one and not what we've seen since. I think she that, that just cued me in that she was just lying. Because, like, the, Towns, really? No, uh-uh. I think she, she probably felt something for Benny, but she just didn't feel like talking about it. Anyway, our girl Cleo uh, gets up, uh, goes over to the guys. Um, all the confidence in the world here from Cleo. Grand master class in walking over to guys in a bar. No hesitation. Mm-hmm. Sticks the hand right out. Um, smash cut to the next morning. Uh, this is the scene that we got when the entire show started. Beth is waking up in a bathtub. Uh, lucky she did not die there. You do, just, just Everybody out there that partakes heavily in substances, please do not fall asleep in a bathtub. It's a very bad idea. Uh, but she wakes up. She's alive. Some guy's knocking on her door. Apparently, she's late for her match with Borgov. Um, she gets up, throws a throws a, a dress on. Um, Cleo is in the bed, so I guess they stay. Cleo stayed in her hotel room. Uh, Beth slugs a shot of vodka. I think that that is a you know that might be hair of the dog, folks. Well, for a lot of folks, that might seem like a throwaway moment, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's a very pointed moment to show. That Beth is one of these people that when it's it's one drink, it's a lot of drinks, and it doesn't necessarily end just because she slept. Yeah. And she gets up the next morning, and it, it, it's it's kind of still going, right? Um, which is a really, really bad sign, obviously. And she goes all disheveled. She runs down, um, gets in the elevator. She, she runs out. She gets to the room where she's ha- uh, going to have the chess match with Borgov. She opens the door, and the paparazzi are bang right in her face. Um, really good job of how they shot that. Yeah, really from her perspective of being overwhelmed. Um, you know, and this is this is tough. This, this scene is not great because she sits down. Um, she doesn't, you know, it's weird because her, it's not like her, she looks bad, but she does look disheveled. And so um, I'm going to give you space here because you you mentioned something before we started recording about how the actress looks. Anna Taylor-Joy looks during the show and maybe that took you out of it. A little suspension of belief here. Her acting is great. 
the actress does well in terms of representing that she is off kilter, she's uncomfortable, we see none of the confidence, we see none of the poise that we've associated with her at high-level play. To the point that even, did you notice this, that Borgov actually looks at her and almost flinches a little bit? It's like he's almost concerned for a second? Yeah, yeah, he has multiple looks. I think he looks at her multiple times in a way that looked empathetic to me. He almost, yeah, when he goes for his killing move, the look in his eyes look almost pitying. It's almost just like, Mm -hmm. this is not what I prepared for, this is not what you prepared for. This is not what either of us wanted. Well, it sucks, right? I mean, like, it, it sucks It's disrespectful for, for him. It's it's disrespectful to him, and he's a competitor. He would not be where he was if he wasn't a competitor. I mean, you get to the NBA Finals, and, you know, you, you know, LeBron James sprains his ankle and then runs out on the court and tries to guard you, and he can't, you know, move to his left. Like, that's not what you We're, prepared for. That's not what anybody wanted to see, and everybody feels cheated in the end. And I think yeah. that's where Borgoff is with this. One of the things, um, that, one of the things that take, take, takes me out of it a bit, um, we've all had our, you know, very drunken nights. A few of us have had benders. Several of us have known our had family members that were alcoholics and got to see them at that state. At no point does she not look perfectly coiffed. Her skin is flawless, her hair is there, her mannerisms represent her unsteadiness, whatever else, but they seem almost afraid from a production standpoint to show her at her physical worst or just even not perfectly attractive. It's a, it seems like a design choice of where they always wanted trayers being relative degrees of flawless, but in some ways it took me out of it, just that, I mean, you could, I, I guess you could view it as that she's taking these pains to cover it all up and whatever else, you can interpret that way. But in some ways it just caught me odd that they always, even when she's on a bender, even she's in a worse state, we're going to see some, some points later where she's supposed to be in a very bad state, they always dress her up a lot to look to look, to look look damn good when realistically she probably wouldn't in those moments. So I think it's a couple of things. One, I think that you're just dealing with a person in Anna Taylor-Joy who is so attractive that it's it's actually kind of hard to dress her down. Sure. Um so I, I think they they struggle with that a little bit, and they, they they there are moments where it looks like they're trying to dress her down, but they seem to struggle with it. Two is, you know, what alcohol does to people when they're, they, and she's not. By the way, I would think that something that's not realistic here, and this is a really small quibble, but like her mm. hands start shaking when she starts to pour the glass, mm-hmm. you know, of, of water. She, you know, she's pouring a glass of water. She has to, t- her hand shaking. She grabs it with her other hand to try to steady herself and Borkov notices it. And that's, there's a very pitying look there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, your hands don't shake after one night of being a bender when you haven't drank for months. No. You, you, your hands shake because D- you're, you're, you're D- withdrawing from alcohol. DTs yeah, exactly. take, some, take a bit of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a little bit uh, um, unrealistic as well but I think they were just trying to show that she was in a, a bad state and that it was very obvious to everyone around that she was hungover I think that's what they were trying to do sure um, but I will say that the, the what alcohol does to people physically a little hard to show on the screen I mean it's fair it, it's kind of hard to show like advanced wrinkles it, and and weight gain and you know the stuff like that so they you know they're kind of it's you know they they probably had to sit in the in the writing room or production room and go all right well how much money do we want to throw at making her look like a drunk right mm-hmm. so it's I don't not, know it's not it's not as bad for this scene because it, it was one rough night and they still represent it in other ways we're gonna see some scenes later where they're implying that she's been on a multi week bender yes it's more noticeable there that they haven't done more agreed um. Yeah, yeah, we we can we can pick that conversation up when we get there. But in this in this moment, I think they were just trying to do everything they could to show the audience, to show Borgov, and to show the fictional audience in the room. 
that Beth was handicapped. She was, she was hung over. It's mostly mentally off her game more than anything else. Yeah, and Borgov beats the hell out of her, obviously. Uh, she has the she has that that look. I don't know if you remember. Um, there was a conversation that she had with Benny in the last episode where Benny was saying, hey, sorry about that thing with Borgoff. And they were kind of commiserating about how it, it's what it's like to lose. And Benny was like, yeah, you feel so out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, Beth has that look when she realizes she's getting beat where she looks up. She's mad. She's panicked. And she looks like she's completely lost control. So it's kind yeah. of they're, 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 it's a through line of emotions there of what it's like for Beth to lose. So it's almost like she's um, on the cusp of tears. We see her in some of these moments, just because of how off kilter and how just this is a this is a car that the brakes aren't working anymore that she's stuck in. She's chugged two pitchers of water while she's sitting there. Yeah, are there <laughs> um, are there bathroom breaks? Because she's going to need one in a minute. Very tense piece is playing. Um, the musical piece piece that's playing. I, I just want to point it out because I thought like it was um, really apropos of Beth's mental state in this scene. There's a lot of staccato and there's a lot of augmented chords and there's a lot of like really, um, uh, really quick and paced, like really, really fast drum beats. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff I think aligns with like Beth's oh, internal um, clock and how she's feeling. During the match, Beth looks up, she knows what's happened. She closes her eyes. She says, I resign. She storms off without shaking his hand. What'd you think about the move to not shake his hand, Spencer? It's in keeping with what we've seen of Beth previously. She's pretty, she probably has quite a reputation in the chess world of not being particularly polite or courteous when she loses, based on what we've seen before when she's lost. I mean, even when she does shake somebody's hand, she immediately exits stage left. But particularly here in this moment with Borgoff in front of the entire world, it's a bad scene for her. It's a bad image that she, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be good for her career to cultivate that kind of thing cut to the plane and there's a conversation that's happening with Benny that is um, laid over top of the plane scene and Benny is saying there's a rumor that she was drunk Beth says she wasn't drunk Benny says well hung over then Beth does not refute that but she does say it, it, she could have been stone cold sober it wouldn't have mattered Benny says I don't believe that um, Spencer do you believe that that no I they, as you said before they've given us they've given us enough to believe or to believe that they believe that she could have won that tournament if she'd been actually keeping to the order and discipline that we'd seen in the days before her bender. Yeah. I think she would have won, but I, I think the idea that it wouldn't have mattered That's definitely at all not true. is hundred percent not true. Yeah. Benny asks when she gets in, uh, he'll come pick her up from the airport. Beth says, I'm going back to Lexington. I need to be alone. Benny, speaking for all of us, replies, that is the a, opposite of what you need. Uh, Benny's a good uh, friend. Benny, <laughs> Benny then asks her to come to New York. Beth says, thank you, Benny, for everything. Benny, quote, you shouldn't be by yourself. You know what happens. How does he know that? How does he know that when she's alone, she gets she gets bad with substances? Two theories. One, there are other people that know, and it may be a reputation, um, the Russians freaking know it, so it, it's, it's something that's out there in the world to a certain degree. Point number two, he did see that she had some problems with alcohol, and he may, and this is just a fair amount of interpretation, have a certain degree of friends or family history that he's seen to be able to tie his own history to her, her, her situation. There seems to be a certain amount of assumption that has to be at play, because he's never seen her at her worst. He doesn't yeah. even have the same knowledge that Harry does. But there's a few threads that he can probably pull at to make something of it. Beth says, maybe that's what I want. Benny, what? To get drunk, Beth? Yeah, good and drunk. Fucking bombed. And maybe high, too. Benny, well, you wouldn't if you were with me. 
Beth agrees to that. Benny, then I feel like this is his last, this is the last tool in his tool bag. He is out on the limb here. This is the last thing he has to try to get Beth to come to him. He says, okay, well, what if I said you could get drunk here? You know, basically. Beth, Benny, I don't know what I'm doing. So Beth is, Benny is like, I felt like in this scene, just trying to do whatever he could to talk her down from going home and being alone. Whatever he could do to get her to New York City so that she can be with him. I think that's the right move on his part. I think he, he knows her very well. I don't, I think it might be a little unrealistic how well he knows her. Um, mm. But he he's right in all of the, the inferences and the impulses he has here about what Beth's doing. It doesn't work. Beth goes home. And we smash cut to Beth walking into the home in Lexington. We do have what she thinks at this given moment is her home and her, her estate and her little refuge from the world in this given moment. Yeah, she, doesn't have, she doesn't have the full picture, but you know. She walks in, the phone rings. It's her lawyer. She doesn't uh-huh. know her lawyer's name, by the way. Didn't did that hurt a little bit? A little disrespect that'll, there. That'll, you know, some some clients that care for us send us Christmas cards and things, but you know that's clearly not Beth. Hell no, you're not getting oranges on Christmas from that one. Um, she says she's been in Paris playing chess. He says, "Well, I've been trying to get up with you." When she says, "I've been in Paris playing chess," he says, "How sweet it must be." All right, I'm back to not feeling bad for the lawyer. <laughs> that was a that was say. a dick line. It was a dick yeah. line. <laughs> so it kind of the needle swung real fast for yeah. me on that. Beth it, asked, "Why also, are you calling?" Go ahead. Is that her lawyer or is it her yeah. dad's lawyer? Because he asked her, her but he asked her to go talk to his lawyer to get everything sorted out with the property. I thought it was his lawyer. And I thought the guy who comes in later is, is that other guy. I didn't think it was the same guy. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure that he was essentially trying to represent both at the same time. Because I think when, he had, when she'd originally talked to him on the phone. Can you do that? No, you can't. It's a serious ethical violation for that kind of conflict of interest. Um, but he told her, I think, to go talk to this guy. And I can't remember if it was his banker or it was his lawyer that he encouraged her to talk to. You think all this were arranged. If it was the lawyer, then that guy needs to be disbarred for an obvious conflict of interest of where he provided poor advice to one party to the benefit of the other. But I wasn't, I couldn't remember that chain of events. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I assumed it was a different guy, but I don't know. Um, Beth says, why are you calling? He says, well, Wheatley doesn't want to sign the title to the house. What a shit. This guy. <sighs> There's nothing redeeming about this man. Nothing fucking redeeming about this fucking guy. Every step of the way, he's a We're- shit. We didn't, we didn't even talked about it. You fucking set me up for this because you knew this was going to happen. Where you got me to say that, yeah, you know, this was a nice gesture on his part. This was a good thing. You know, you immediately, it's couched with a lot of other shit, but this seems like a, a profound act of generosity. You got me to say that when you knew this was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And then I think I, when you said it, I think I said something like, well, we'll see. <laughs> you did. You did. Just a, uh, uh, but anyway, you can see this fucking coming a mile away because this guy's a piece of garbage. Yeah, yeah. Um, Beth says, well, you told me you'd sign whatever's necessary. Uh, he told me he'd sign whatever's necessary. The lawyer explains it apparently. Wheatley's changed his mind. Cut to Wheatley and his lawyer coming into the home. The lawyer proposes Beth can stay in the house until she finds something permanent. Pretty, pretty. Um, I would say a pretty condescending proposal to start sure. out with. Um, this is not a meet halfway sort of proposal nope. um, Beth <laughs> calls him at, go ahead no I was going to say that, yeah this is very much I own it I can do whatever I want with it and I will allow you to remain here which is under the couch of because I control the entire thing and I'm doing this on a whim for my own you know godly grace what a shit Beth calls him out says it's not what we agreed to the lawyer uh, says that she misconstrued him uh, Beth pushes it Beth, Beth does I like Beth's play here mm-hmm. how she starts talking to Wheatley 
Yeah. And she starts saying, that's not what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, you can't even look at me. You mm-hmm. adopted me. Can't you talk to me? And then he said, Alma, Alma wanted a child. Alma wanted a child, not me. He then goes on this fucking rant about how he didn't want a child. She's not entitled to everything he owns because he signed some papers to shut Alma up. And he thought the piano would do it, but no. This guy's a real peach, Spencer. This guy is one of the more self-absorbed individuals I've ever seen put on the screen. Just He has Ugh. no concept of anyone else's well-being or caring for them. He finally says it's all pathetic. Beth asked if he ever really listened to Alma play. Well, of course he didn't. Finally, Beth calls him pathetic, which um, when he does, when Beth calls him pathetic, I felt like the lawyer thought, okay, well, this could be start to get really ugly here. So he jumps in and he asks Wheatley, okay, well, what do you want? He says he wants her out. He wants to sell the house. So meaning um, whatever's equity, whatever equity exists in the home, he wants to cash it out, put it in his pocket. Beth says, well, you can sell it to me. He says, well, my equities were $7,000. He'll show her the receipts. Now, uh, I've been doing the conversion for everybody. 7K, 1964 money, about $60,000 of today's money. Which, which you know, for a pretty nice house, whatever else, it's... It, it, Beth, I'm a little surprised by the amount of money Beth apparently just has in the bank. I don't know if we'd really had it framed how much she's been winning from these tournaments or been saving, particularly with how kind of carefree casual she can be about spending money um but i'm gonna guess a alma life insurance policy very possible very possible good on alma for getting that in place and (laughs) renaming the beneficiary to beth during that key moment um but to get a nice house in suburbia for sixty thousand bucks you know there are worse things to spend your money on she's probably making money on that investment yeah oh yeah she's definitely making money i mean well she she's losing money because she thought she had the house to begin with yes but she's actually making money because she's going to pony up 7K and it's probably worth 15 or whatever. Um, but uh, she, she says she'll pay the seven. Beth does challenge him and say your equity's worth five. And he says, no, it's worth seven. This is going to surprise you, Spencer. He does not come off of the seven. She has to go to his number. Kind of. Kind of. She has a, re- yeah, she has yeah, a rejoinder. But she's subtracting what it costs to bury Alma. Beth says, I'll show you the receipts. Uh, I don't think he has any, any room to wiggle there. Uh, Wheatley gets up, says good luck, walks out. That's the last we see of Wheatley. I will go ahead and spoil that for you. Mm-hmm. Lawyer says he'll spend over the paperwork in the morning. He leaves. Um, so uh, she's cutting um, seven grand, 60K of today's money for reference for everybody as a check to this Wheatley guy to basically go away. Mm-hmm. To get out of her life as he has long since viewed her as never part of his. Um, I, you know... I think it's a good move on Beth's part. I would still sell the home if I was Beth. I mean, uh, you know, I would Wait. I would pay the seven, get your fifteen back, and then go move somewhere else. It, it's it's so weird what she intends to do with this home. I don't know if she's certain what her goal is about this, other than that she feels like she needs a home. It's a measure of security that she otherwise would lack. Last thing we want of this woman right now is to be homeless, roving like around the world like Cleo. Um, so I think she views the home as a safe spot to retreat to. And the next few scenes, we see her almost try to be a bit of a homemaker. She's, you know, arranging for the bowing of the yard. She's doing shopping. She's planting flowers herself. She seems almost like she's trying to go a bit domestic or like, you know, a homebody to a certain degree in a, in a, in a productive way. But she can't sustain that. That I, She doesn't have, it's not in her to kind of be this kind of home taker. No. Homemaker. Um, cut to a montage of Beth clearing out all this stuff. So my thought here, Spencer, is that now that she's actually paid for the home, mm-hmm. 
I think she kind of feels like it's hers now, right? To do so what she wants. Yeah, she can kind of do what she wants to. She can clear out some of the stuff. She can make some changes. Then we see Beth is contacted by some Christian organization who wants to sponsor Beth. Christian Crusade. Yeah. Good Christian day. Yeah. So here's the here's the deal on this, right? This is, this is some Christian like pro America group who hates the Soviets, hates communism, and they want to sponsor her to go over there because they have heard through the grapevine that she's probably the best. She's a U.S. champion, so she's probably one of the best that we have. They want to sponsor her to go beat the communists. Maybe at least beat the communists fund- for Jesus. Maybe at least casually funded by the CIA, given things we've learned about you know CIA funding during the sixties. Could very well have been. Uh, yeah, because they they probably gave the money and like, oh, we're just going to send this guy named Todd with you who has a, you know, a nice suit on and an earpiece. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, she yes, she talks to Benny about it. Uh, Benny says, yeah, you know, they sponsor me too. Uh, they want to beat communism for Jesus. Take the money, do it. It's a good idea. Um, Benny asks Beth if she'll come to New York. She demurs. She asks how he is. He says he misses her. He then tells her to study the game pamphlets for the last Moscow Invitational. He tells her to write the Jesus people, accept their help. Uh, so right now what Beth is doing, she's, she doesn't have the money really to like go to Moscow. She just paid seven grand to this idiot Wheatley. I think she's doesn't have a lot of money, so she's mm. getting sponsorship now, right? Spencer, the NBA is yeah. broke. They're going to sell jersey space. They're putting patches on the jerseys now. This is exactly what this is. Exactly or or the, Christ, the, the Christian organization just wants to put her on a nice box of Wheaties. There, there are other ways to look at this. Yeah, they, they want to, the, yeah, make her, make her a national hero. Cut to Beth's study, and late at night, she at one point gets up, goes to a restaurant. Bad sign. She orders an appetizer. She's asked about a cocktail. She says, no, please, Beth, no. I just want to cover. Boom, she changes it. Oh. To a what? Uh, and to a yet what? again, when she orders the Gibson, Vegas yeah. takes it off the board. Uh, you can't even bet on it if there's yeah. going to be a second drink. We when we get a shot of her at this restaurant, sitting at a table alone, drinking her Gibson, while a uh, lounge singer plays, I think it's uh, I Can't Remember Love, which is a well-done scene. I, enjoy, I enjoyed that. Yeah, very good. Uh, then we see Beth getting her drink. Thinking, uh, smash cut to Beth stumbling in her home. I guess this is later that night. She has stopped at the store on the way back. She's got a bottle. She tips the bottle up. She starts housing the bottle. She gets a call. It's Beltic. She doesn't say a word to him. She just hangs up on Beltic. Cut to a montage of Beth drinking. Uh, this is a song by an organization called, or a, a organization, a uh, group called Venus. Uh, yeah, baby, she's got it. Yeah, baby, she's got it. That song mm-hmm. um, plays in the background. Well, the, the, I think the band is Shocking Blue. The song is Venus. Oh, oh, okay, Venus. Yeah. Anyway, mm. um, really? I'll, I'll double check while you're talking. I just make sure the name of the song. One sec. Okay. Um, anyway. You know the song. We've all heard it. Yeah, baby, she's got it. It plays in the background. So this is the the seminal montage of Beth drinking. Uh, do you have the answer? It is. It, it, it is uh, the song Venus by the Dutch band Shocking Blue. Venus Shocking Blue. Got it. Okay. Um, whoever did these notes. God. Terrible. <laughs> it's a collaborative um, effort. Collaborative effort. So she, this is a, this is supposed to be like the, the maybe a low point for Beth. It's her yeah. drinking. She's drinking over a lot of days during the montage. She throws up in one of her chest trophies. I don't know if that's supposed to be funny. Um, certainly was not funny to me. Mm. She got to a department store where it looks like she's stealing things. Um, she goes to eat something. She spills it. 
She yells at a neighbor who's like looking at some of the bottles she has in a trash. She knocks over a chessboard. She passes out in her living room. Um, they, I, you know, I think we get the point here. Um, I don't know how much time passes here. You asked this question earlier. Um, it's got to be at least a week, right? I it, mean, it's a yeah. long time. It, it's got to be at least a week or something along those lines. And if not longer, based on the, the conversation she ends up having with Baltic later, I mean, I think she might have been in, in, in for a couple of weeks here of drinking around the clock. That's mm-hmm. my guess. And it hits all of the necessary notes of that. Like, if, if you were a um, training young writers in the subject of how do you show somebody's going through a bender or a low moment, that kind of way, this checks all of those boxes. I ultimately don't find the overall package that effective or that compelling or even necessarily that believable, but it's functional, I guess. It hits the notes it needs to hit. Well, it's tough because, you know, what what they're what they're showing here is active alcoholism. Yeah. And advanced, advanced active alcoholism. Because, um, I mean, you know, a lot of alcoholics are, are practicing alcoholics, but they don't drink in the morning. They don't drink till after work or something. I mean, this, sure. is, this is advanced behavior because she's drinking when she wakes up and drinking all the way till she goes to bed uh, with no breaks. And um, it's, it's a tough spot for the show because they want to portray this. And I'm not I could question why they want to portray this or why they wrote it in this way. But they haven't established their self as a show that really goes that dark. Yeah. So that's why during the montage you have this like scene of her throwing up in a chess trophy. I think they're trying to like add levity to the moment. Which and it's like my shouldn't. what I would have if I was given like notes on the script, I would have said maybe don't go there. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe show some active alcoholism, but maybe don't go quite to drink all the time because if you're going to jo- you're going to go that far with it, and you're going to do a montage, it needs to be really ugly and it needs right. to be really dark and you didn't go there. So I'm not quite sure what they were trying to accomplish there. And it certainly doesn't, doesn't work for me. You either, you, this is the kind of thing you either work effectively by implication. You show her after that two week bender. You don't, exp, you don't depict it. You just show the kind of state that she's at or you don't pull your damn punches when you're showing it. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And they don't really do either, and I don't think trying to, you know, do the mid-through line works for this kind of thing very well. But as you said, it's not its not the show they want to be. They felt the need to show this, but I just don't, because it's not the show they want to be, I don't think it's done very, as effectively as it probably should have been. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go, if you're going to show somebody in advanced active alcoholism, I mean, you got to do the Leaving Las Vegas. I mean, you got to go right there. That's a good and, example. And they didn't do it here, so I, I don't... It, they tried to shoot the gap. It didn't work for me. Cut to Beltic knocking on the door. Beth, are you in there? I've been calling. Are you okay? I'm worried about you. Beth, it's Harry. Beth, if you're in there, please open the door. I got the impression that Beth slept through this. Yes. Well, Beth, I, you noticed, did you notice that Beth had hit her head? Yeah. I mean, it, and it, it's hard to tell if at that point she's concussed, knocked out, or if she hit her head, was concussed, and I mean, slept through the wake up. Yeah. <laughs> it's some combination. Little column A, column B. <laughs> Um, then she gets a phone call that she decides to answer. I, I don't know why she's not answering the Beltic phone calls, but this one she does answer. She says, Elizabeth Harmon, this is uh, the, the person says, Elizabeth Harmon, this is Ed Spencer. I'm a local tournament director. I'm calling about tomorrow. So they want to know if she'll come in early to take some pictures. Apparently she's supposed to play in some chess tournament. She forgot or lost track of time or something. But this is now, she now knows she's got to go in, I guess the next day, play chess. She refuses to go in the day before for the pictures. She tells them, I'll just be there a half hour early and take pictures then. <clears throat> Cut to Beth walking into the high school. She, so 
This is where she's supposed to look like really rough after a bender. And this is where you're saying that she doesn't look rough enough, right? This is one of those moments. I mean, they have, you know, she goes in, we're going to completely recap and go to the same. She goes in, she briefly, rather rudely talks with, I guess it was like the tournament director or coordinator. She asks for aspirin. She walks out. She runs into Harry. There's a bit of a confrontation there. And during that confrontation with Harry, he even says, look at your skin, the smell that's coming off you, whatever else. He's acting like she is a person that's come out of a multi-week bender and looks obviously apparently rough. And it doesn't work because, she, at least to me, she doesn't. It just looks like she's got a lot of eyeliner on. Yeah. That's all. Um, yeah, so Spencer, man, you really broke the rules there. You got ahead on the on the recap. <laughs> now I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm going to go to the recap anyway. Pretend like you didn't hear what Spencer just said. She asked for the aspirin immediately. She's got glasses on. She takes them off. She's got eyeliner on. I don't know. That's what she looks like. It doesn't look, doesn't look too much different to me. And uh, Annette Packer is a, a woman who walks up to her. She says that she was Beth's first official win. Mm-hmm. Beth is kind of staggering around, unbalanced as Annette is talking. She says, I knew you were going places, and that meant something to me. I, I think as a woman, uh, saying that it's possible for us. Beth asks if she's playing, and that says, no, uh, I don't play anymore. I'm pre-med. i got no time. Good for her. Um, and good for her, but it, it, it's a yet another example of somebody who left chess behind as if chess was some sort of like fun pastime thing. And I guess it was for her, but you know, that, that's got to sting a little bit for Beth when she hears those. Like, mm. mm-hmm. um, Beth, Beth, that's the whole shebang for Beth. And Beth is scarcely polite to this person. This is a, yeah, she's not very nice. Yeah. This is a person who not only, you know, she met earlier in her career and clearly is followed her and idolized her to a certain degree. This is a person that was really nice to her in her early career. She supported her. She was the one who stood with her in the bathroom. She even jokes about it. And you gave her her first tampon, upped her work through her first period. And Beth's barely giving her the time of day. Well, and she, Vanna even says she drove down there for the weekend just to see her. Yeah. Um, anyway, the guy comes back to give Beth the aspirin. Beth pulls out a cigarette. He says, there's no smoking in here. Beth is very rude to him. Storms outside. Outside, she sees Harry Beltic. Return of Harry Beltic. Beth notices he got a new car and so on brand for Beltic. This made me chuckle. He wrecked the last one. Of course yeah. he did. Of course yeah. he did. Of course he did. He got, got like a Volkswagen Beetle as his new car or something, right? Yeah, looking good though. I like, yeah. I like the new look for Beltic. Beltic says he's been calling. Uh, says he even came by once. Beth doesn't seem to remember that he came by. He says he was worried about her. He says he's seen her once or twice at the supermarket. Beth immediately, you know, she's she's... You know, she's in a vulnerable position here. So she's attacking back like a lot of people in this position do. She says, you're following me? Beth says, I work there. Beth, oh, she knows she's caught now. There's no place for her to get self-righteous because Beltic has a reason to be there. Um, And she knows she probably showed up at the supermarket in pretty tough shape. Beth says, you never said hello, Beltic. You didn't seem approachable. You need help. Beth, what kind of help would that be? She basically says, what was it? Chess? We tried that before. Uh, Beltic says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, really affecting quote here uh, for the, the show and probably for anyone who's ever dealt with this. Yeah. What kind of help would that be? Um, he then says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, he says, my dad drank. He wasn't mean or anything. He just got quiet and fell asleep in his clothes. You smell just like he did. Your eyes are just like his. Your skin is like she scoffs at the skin and Beltic moves on and says, like I said, I'm worried about you. Beth says, sounds a little bit more like you're feeling sorry for me. I'm not the one who's supposed to be in college, not working in a supermarket. He says, I'm doing both. Sets aside our personal attacks and says, you know what? I like working there. It's a good job and the people are nice. Um, 
Beth, it's called back to the tournament. Beth Beltic says, good luck, Beth. So, um, yeah, we won't spend a whole ton of time on it, but I, you know, what Beltic is, this isn't his attempt at some sort of intervention. Um, you know, he doesn't know her. She doesn't have any family. He doesn't know any of her other friends, so he can't pull anybody together, but this is him trying to have the, the level with her and say, look, man, I've seen you about, I know what's going on here. Uh, we're not going to talk around it. He's going to talk right at the issue. He says, but my dad was an alcoholic, right? Uh, he talks right at her. Um, how much of this do you think gets through to Beth? How much do you think this affects her um, or percent chance that it might change her behavior? Right here, right now, or even in the short term, very, very low, very, very little. If anything, she just kind of responds angrily to it rather than... There's, there's a couple moments of like when... I think almost the most affecting line is not when he calls her out on the drinking. It's when she insults him and he says, no, I like my life. It's good people that I work with. That's almost the one she has never response to, of when it's like, oh, I'm just a piece of shit. Oh, huh. She doesn't really respond in any way to the drinking, and I think, honestly, this, the response at this stage is mostly going to be defensive and angry and just further isolating herself rather than actually taking it to heart. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I kind of felt like, you know, maybe the, maybe the thing that might have got her is Beltic saying, you need help, I'm worried about you. These are things that you, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to hide what's really going on or you're, you know, if Beth is trying to, um, you know, not, not be very direct, she's it's talking around it. But then he finally says, my dad drank. And yeah. I thought that line is when it crosses to he's like going to look right. He's looking right at her and he's yeah. talking directly about what's going on. And it probably really put her back on her heels. But I will say I agree with you. I Great move by Beltic here. Great guy. Mm -hmm. um, love everything he does here as a, just a human. Uh, I don't think it does shit for Beth at this and, moment. And I, I love your point about that line being meaningful to her and being a powerful line. And I agree long term. That's the kind of thing that's going to fester and stick with her. That could be a kernel by, for improvement later, but not now. Not now. It's yeah. going to it's going to matter shit. Particularly since as much as good. As good as this is on Harry, he is one guy, and he's exiting stage left the moment after he says the line. That's not. Well, it's tough. I mean, if you're in, Harry's it is position, for him. You know, yeah. What? Well, yeah. What do you? What? You know. You want to say something to the person? What do you say? What do you do? People have struggled this through ever since people first crushed grapes. So people have struggled with this, but I do think that as hard as it was for him to probably go there and do that, I thought he did a uh, he did. two hands up cheer. For, no, no, for Beltic at the effort. So the, good. Shout out to Beltic, the real MVP it, right here. It is no criticism to him. What he did was great. What he did was the exact right thing to do. It's just not enough to turn this train around right here, right now. Completely. That's not agreed. that's not a judgment on him. No, not at all. He he did his best. Beth runs home. She doesn't so she I took it that he she ran home from that conversation. Yeah. That she did not play in the tournament. Did you take it that way? Yeah. That she just exited and left the tournament to its lonesome. She come home. Close the drapes. Uh, I guess she keeps drinking. Um, I guess some more time passes. Then we D see a car few days, pull up. probably. Then we see a car pull up. A nice car, I might add. Very nice car. And there's a rap at the front door. Beth Who is could it be? Up. She falls down the stairs, trying to get down the stairs, cursing Harry the whole way. Harry, I told you to leave me alone. Beth opens the door. And is that Jolene's music, ladies and gentlemen? That's right. My favorite character of the show, we, other than Jojen, my shout out, uh, Benny Watts, 
Uh, my favorite character of the show, Jolene, is back. With the most center. gorgeous afro ever known to man. <laughs> is, is that Jolene's music, ladies and gentlemen? Jolene is back at the perfect time because we just talked about how Harry tried to talk to her. Didn't work. Mm-hmm. Obviously didn't work. Beth went right home, went right back to her activity. But now, if anybody on this earth is going to be able to get through to Beth in this state, I think it is one Jolene Jolene, looking great, as you pointed out. Great afro, got a nice car. Mm-hmm. Kitted out, obviously doing pretty well for herself. Oh, yeah, she's styling. Looks at Beth. Jesus fucking Christ. Who the hell are you? Beth Cut. cocks her head. Jolene, end of episode. Yeah. Great ending to the episode. Not Solid a great ending. episode. Great ending. Yeah. I'm curious about your thoughts. I expressed some of mine. Where would you rank on this episode if you had to give it like a one out of ten or even particularly compare it to other episodes in the se- in the season? Um, I think episode one, two, three, one, two were kind of in their own. Mm-hmm. They're almost a different show. I mean, because yeah. it's like almost like a kid in an orphanage. It's a whole different thing. It's Oliver Twist done with chess. Yeah, it's very, very different. Um, I would say that like Episode four, I believe. That's the one where um, Alma dies, right? I think so, yeah. Um, that That's like moving day for the show. I felt like that was probably the best so far. Mm-hmm. I felt like episode five, as we talked about last time, was stretched a little bit. I felt like it could have been one episode. And when I was giving that um, criticism, I was doing it through the lens of having watched episode six and feeling the same way about episode six, right? I felt like you could have done one episode with season episode five and six um, together because I felt like they were both stretched out a little bit. Uh, I do like it better than episode five. Um, You know, you know, the substance abuse thing. I mean, I I find it pretty powerful. I mean, it's a relatable thing Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, we, we have grown to love Beth and so you know obviously this is this is a big um, challenge for her something she's got to try to work past and so they've introduced it and I find myself rooting for um, you know again I mean it's kind of tough they're doing it in seven episodes to try to show (laughs) substance abuse usually it's a thing that that you know uh, comes about in somebody's life over a period of years but they boom bam they smash cut it they did it really quick but that I could see how somebody could be very critical of the episode if they didn't like the substance abuse angle. Sure. If they thought like, ah, you know, this is kind of overdone in media. I don't need it. Let's get back to the chess. I, I could totally get that criticism. For mm-hmm. me, it just works. So, I mean, it, it, because I'm in on that, that, that angle in the plot, right? I'm in on the episode. But I will say that I thought it was stretched out. Um, I would have given the episode maybe a 6 out of 10 until um, out sure. from, the, from the back room... The music played. Who is that? It's my girl Jolene. She's out in the squared circle again. I'm gonna bump it to a six and a half because of the ending. I thought the ending was great. Um, I think that's a fair to rating. reintroduce that character. I think I think that's a fair rating. I think that's reasonable. I've I've had annoyances with the episode. Um, the aspects of portraying Beth as almost just superhuman just tends to make her either feel unrealistic or unrelatable. And I know they've always framed her as being another prodigy, but they've done a good job with giving her weaknesses that they then largely ignore over the course of this episode. I feel like that's a misstep. Uh, if you set up the idea that she, that, that not only is she flawed, but she isn't perfect, that there are aspects that she's not going to be the best at, that can be a very profound and sometimes unusual thing to add into this kind of tortured genius genre. So to leave that behind, I don't know why they did that. I, that, that felt unnecessary, particularly when they haven't given us enough of a reason to believe that she's improved in that particular way. And I... 
I'll say like it's funny. I, I keep saying that like the the substance abuse angle works for me, but then I keep shitting all over it. I'm going to continue to do that. <laughs> it has some problems. <laughs> I'm telling you, it works for me. But here's another yeah. caveat: is that you know they kind of portray you. You're right. They they have trouble showing Beth as human, as somebody who has weakness, and it seems like the only weakness to her chess game is her drinking. And I feel like that's very unrealistic, right? Because like, couldn't they just show her just struggle with, you know, certain, I don't know, types of uh, plays, like maybe the, the 11 fish she struggles with or something. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be she loses to him because she was drunk the night before. I feel like that's a little easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be, you know, and in, 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 in it's probably not realistic. I mean, because, you know, she... If she's going to build up to beat the best player in the world at the time, you know, it, it's not just, you know, being drunk that's going to stop her probably as she gets on the way to get there. Which is why I agree with you that episode four, when she's in Mexico City and she just loses to Borgoff outright because he's the better player, was probably the best episode of this show. It was a great episode. It was almost a surprise to do that kind of route of, no, this workmanship style of play that's actually what you need to learn to become the best in the world right now. Your genius is only going to take you so far. This isn't the 1800s, Paul Morphy. We've we've developed a very much technical workmanship style of chess to actually win. And that, didn't she lose to Borgoff before she found Alma dead? Yes, she did. See, I think she that lost was great outright. too. Because yeah, exactly. They could have done the this sort of cheap thing of she found Alma dead. She was struggling the next morning. She played Borgov. She lost. And then you'd have it in your head. Well, did she lose to Borgov because of the grieving or because she really wasn't as good? They removed that doubt there. They 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 um, introduced that doubt in this scene mm-hmm. with the, you know, she was hungover or whatever before she played him. So, you know, all, all said, I think there's probably some stuff that you could be very critical of in this episode. It's not the best episode of the season. Um, uh, spoiler alert, I think the best one episode of the season is coming up, the Ooh. finale. So you got that to look forward to, Spencer. But all in all, a pretty good episode of television. Okay, Spencer, it is time for our segments. We will go into best line of the episode. I alone remember best line of the episode. Then we will go to best scene of the episode. Kind of a new one for us. We're doing best scene of the episode here for the Queen's Gambit. Then we go to my favorite part of every week here on Mangum Talks TV, which is Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, <laughs> let's do some quotes. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, we'll just go back and forth like we've been doing. Uh, do you have a first one? I do. Uh, a quote from Benny. But that's who you are. You're bored with ordinary chess, even when it's played by grandmasters. It's a good read on Beth as a character, that she is such a prodigy, such a genius. The idea of this being work, the idea of this being a training-based thing, it's practically foreign to her. Okay. Um, I've got one, kind of a longer one here. Uh, if we if we select it for best line of the episode we'll probably chop it up but i'll do the whole thing Mm -hmm. uh you haven't this is benny talking to beth you haven't done anything like what i'm making you do now we're playing serious chess workmen like chess kind of chess that is played by the best players in the world the soviets and you know why they're the best player in the world it's because they played together as a team especially during adjournments they help each other out as americans we work alone because we're all such individualists we don't like to let anyone help us Maybe that's the best line of the episode. We don't like to let anyone help. It's a pretty good one. It, it summarizes a lot of themes you've talked about, of just how much they want to draw a point of comparison and difference between the Russian and American style. Um, co- quote from Cleo. Models. How does she pronounce it? Models? Models. 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 Models are empty creatures. The camera lens fills them with color and texture and once in a while mystery. But just like there is no mystery to a vacant lot, it is just there until you put something interesting on top of it. Models are the same. They are just what you put on them. 
Ooh, good one there from from the model. Um, this is a very rare nomination from our homegirl Beth Harmon. I don't know that Beth has gotten a single potential best line of the episode. I've got one here for a, uh, a quick Beth, a little snappy um, clap back here at the press conference. Beth, I would say it's much easier to play chess without the burdens of an Adam's apple. That was quick. I, mean, I, I have to believe she workshopped that one beforehand to get it ready, just because it was obvious she was me asked that question. But it's a good line. Yeah, our girl has a lot of um, a lot of skills. I would not say that being like a quick conversationalist is one of them. She often clams up uh, when she, things get a little too quick. She often clams up, or she insults the person she's talking with. It seems to be her default things whenever she starts to get uncomfortable. Um, last one, I, I, I got two other ones. Another one from Cleo. So the pretty girl has taste to go with her other gifts. You make me sick, you know? I thought um, that one was funny. This one from Benny. You shouldn't be by yourself. You know what happens. Yeah. Uh, and then last one for me from uh, Beth to her stepdad. Uh, referring, talking about her mom, Alma. Did you ever hear her play? No, but you did, did you ever really listen? My potential, my last nominee for potential line of the episode is our coming back into the uh, into the scene. Harry Beltic. Um, oh dad, yeah, my dad drank. He wasn't mean or anything. He just got quiet and fell asleep in his clothes. You smell just like he did. Your eyes are just like his eyes. That's a powerful line, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> this is a tough one because I I don't know about you, but like this might be one of the weaker potential best line of the episode. <laughs> Uh, nominees that we've had and maybe any episode of the show yeah i'm scraping the bottom of the barrel i usually have to cut this down from like 10 or whatever else because the writing's pretty solid here some of these i had to even trump up to make it on this list of what five that i had pretty weak showing i I don't know man this is hard i'm gonna go probably with the one that i felt like was the most powerful the most powerful line, the one that as I was watching kind of blew me back in my seat a little bit. I will say that this line is probably not in the vein of most of our best line of the episodes in that it's like um, representative of the plot, right? Mm -hmm. Usually I like to grab a line that's representative of where the plot's going or where it's been. This is not that at all. Um, Because we have a weak showing of potential lines this week, I'm just going with a powerful line, the one that rocked me back in my seat. Best line of the episode, episode six of The Queen's Gambit. My dad drank. He wasn't mean or anything. He just got quiet and fell asleep in his clothes. He smelled mm-hmm. just like he did. Your eyes are like his eyes. Yeah. Um, again, this is not that that line is not going to go on the tombstone of the show. No, but I no. do think that in a in a particularly weak episode and a episode with weak dialogue, it it was at least powerful. Yeah, and particularly when it's coming from Harry, which I kind of written off Beltic as being a pretty irrelevant character. But the fact that he's showing up again and is really, in some ways, reading Beth better than almost anybody else around her is notable. Uh, he was a kind of an unnecessary character, but it was a powerful scene to have him come back to, more than anyone else so far in her life, directly try to help her or at least confront her about her demons. Yo, I'm going to tell you, like, in my, my power rankings of characters in this show... I mean, number one with a bullet, always in hearts and minds, is Jolene Jolene. Jolene. <laughs> number one, always, every week, even though she hasn't been around. Jolene is always number one. I got to say, for me, Beltic is two. I think I like mm. Beltic as a character. I think he they rounded out his character um, by talking about some details about him, right? Like, he's, he like 
he he fucking hoofs it at a damn supermarket. And you know what, Spencer? You know what? He likes that job, right? Yeah, it's good yeah. people. He enjoys I'm, working I'm there. With, with Harry Beltic. I think they wrote him very well. I think they've used him well. Uh, and I, I have the sense that I, I feel like I know the guy. Mm-hmm. I, I was hoping for Jojen. Does Jojen round out your top three? Or Jojen's is it a... probably three, yeah. And then Alma, four. Alma was good, but, you know, kind of flamed out early. Um, was jo- was Jojen hurt by Beth confronting him about the knife? Was that what just killed him in the ratings for you? Man, really knocked him down a peg. And also <laughs> that ridiculous, um, like, open gown... Like open robe thing, handed her the coffee in the morning that he did. Oh, I mean, that yeah, was yeah. just weak. That was, that was, put a shirt on, man. <laughs> put well, a shirt on. Okay, that concludes best line of the episode. We will now move to best scene of the episode. We normally do these where you give me a couple nominees and I will pick one. Um, I think the predominance of best scenes of the episode that we've done for Queen's Gambit have been chess matches. Mm-hmm. I would not say that the chess match that we got this time, which was um, her going up against up against the big the big Russian. Borgov. Uh, uh, yeah, her against Borgov number two. I do not believe that that would qualify here for me. I, I did not think that was a very compelling scene at all. I mean, I, she just basically shot the bed. That's all that was. It, it was disappointing to see that the ch- actual chess play in this episode was kind of weak. I mean, it... It's still ranked among the one of the better scenes of the episode, but it's just so much lesser than what we've seen previously and what they've done previously, particularly from the high marks of the episode that came before this. For me, I'd almost just say, I think I would pick as my best scene of the episode, or at least best thing of the episode, is that this episode, again, just really hammered home how much I love the music on this show and how it's integrated into the show. Okay. The musical list for this episode was very strong and was a gr- great collection of songs to embody its era, and even a few that are truly great songs that have been kind of forgotten were part of the era. So for me, I guess the best scene I would just give kudos to, whoever did the musical direction for the show and ever plotted out what the soundtrack was going to be, kudos to you. You did well, and this, this is another episode that emphasizes that. Wow, Spencer, that is a, what an esoteric, like, heady, like, tripping me out sort of uh, nominee there. You just picked the best scene of the episode was just the score, whoever, whoever picked. How is that best scene of the episode? I don't even know, but you know what, Spencer? Gone it, I like it. That's All great. right, I win. That's it. Okay. I'm picking that one. It's best scene of the episode is just any time we had music playing. I mean, between, you know, stop all your sobbing, yeah, yeah, tut, 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 I can't remember love, uh, uh, Venus. It was a great collection of music this episode in particular. I will hand out some honorable mentions. I will give the road trip scene only because it is the, the, the proportions, right? It is so inversely proportional to the quality of the show, the quality of that green screen. I mean, I don't know that you can ever get two things farther apart other than maybe Game of Thrones and the Starbucks coffee cup. I think those are the only things that are as far apart in quality and just a completely shit moment, a completely amateurish moment. Uh, That green screen was awful. I'm going to throw in, um, and it would have been best scene of the episode, no doubt, period, full stop, if there had actually been a scene, but it was with the return of my girl Jolene. Is that Jolene's music, ladies and gentlemen? That mm. was a very good one. And then, of course, I'm going to pick because um, again, I just thought in a week episode it was the most powerful 
um, part of the episode when, when Beltic confronts Beth. I thought that was really strong. But I like your pick, Spencer. Head in the clouds. Keep them guessing. Keep yeah, them I mean, guessing. I'm here to offer you variety, sir. And I offer the same when it comes to my segment of my Wikipedia spiral. Are you ready for it? That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Now for my favorite part of the week. The best, uh, the best segment we have here on Mangum Talks TV with Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, take it away. Well, you know, I'm going to go out a bit on a limb for this segment that I'm going to work under the assumption that the next episode may involve a bit of a final confrontation between Beth and Borgov, possibly in Russia, the final grand championship to decide who is the true master of the world. I will say this about it, Spencer. Without, I mean, I, I, I would not, had I would not have had you watch this show if they would have if they would have ended without that if they would have just if Beth just would if the next episode was Beth going home and just being like you know what I think I'll quit drinking and quit playing chess yeah I, you wouldn't be watching this with me so yeah. that's a fair guess are, are you <laughs> telling me that, my hand there. are you telling me you wouldn't watch the show where next episode Beth just retires from chess and raises a family in in, a, in, in semi suburban Kentucky. That's not no. the show you'd want to watch. <laughs> I might have watched it because you know it's pandemic. I've been, uh, I've been. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nothing else to watch. Yeah. I would not have had you watch it with me for the show, though. I can guarantee that. All right. Well, we've discussed before that the parallels between this kind of epic moment of confrontation and the 1972 World Chess Competition, World Chess Championship between the the U.S. and the Soviets are rife. It seems that this was a direct point of inspiration for the original book and is carried through the show, as well as a lot of similarities or at least points of comparison on the idea of a child prodigy and brilliance in chess between Beth and I would use the term illustrious, but it's a very complicated figure of Bobby Fischer. So use what other adjective you'd like to use to describe him. Oh, boy. So, Bobby Fischer makes his, makes his debut <laughs> into, the, into the show. So I feel it is appropriate to set up who are our parallel players in real life compared to the show. At this 1972 World Championship, it was the American Bobby Fischer against the Soviet Russian Boris Spassky. So introducing these two players, I think, sets us up at a great point to draw further comparisons, hopefully next episode, between them. And how the ultimate chess championship, we see, presumably the next episode, goes down compared to how it did in real life. But I will give you the freedom. Would you prefer for me to talk about Bobby Fischer first or Boris Spassky first? We're going to talk about both today, or at least leading up to the championship, but who would you prefer to hear about first? Uh, Spassky first. Let's, let's end with the coup de grace. Spassky. Well, Boris Spassky was born in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, in 1937. He learned chess at age five when he was on a train evacuating Leningrad while it was in the course of the single longest and deadliest siege in human history. If you've not heard about the siege of Leningrad, it took two and a half years and millions of people died in what was an utter meat grinder during World War II. Meanwhile, five-year-old Spassky was learning chess on a train as he was fleeing with his family. He was indisputably a prodigy at an early age. A good example of that was that at age 10, the then Soviet champion, uh, Mikhail Botvinnik, was engaging in simultaneous chess. A very common thing for you know, the best players of the world is, hey, you know, all these people come around, play me, I'll play Tenny at the same time, it'll be fun, you know, it's, let's host an event. He was putting that on, and 10-year-old Spassky signed up to play against him. 10-year-old Spassky defeated Soviet champion Mikhail Botvinnik at this simultaneous championship which I'm sure was a bit of a controversial moment, made all the more interesting that Botvinnik the next year became the undisputed world champion and was the undisputed world champion for the, the greater part of the next 15 years, despite the fact that 
the predecessor event to that was him losing to a 10-year-old at an uh, exhibition match. Spassky was incredibly well-trained in the Soviet style and in just the utter Soviet dedication and discipline to chess. From an early age, he received several hours of training a day from master-level coaches. As a result of that training and his natural skill, he was the youngest Soviet player to achieve what they refer to as the first rank at age 10, their youngest candidate master at 11, and their youngest Soviet master at 15. And he became, at the time, the youngest grandmaster in the world to achieve the title at 19 years old in 1956. Notably, despite his incredibly brilliant youth, he has played during the later part of his teens and early 20s was kind of uneven and lackluster coming in uh, much lower in the rankings in several tournaments, outright losing several tournaments, which seems to driven in no small part by the fact that he had marriage problems during that period, and it rather distracted him from chess. He also lost his maid trainer, which really threw him off his game. Still, during this period, he met and played for the first time Bobby Fischer in 1960, sharing first place with Bobby Fischer at an Argentinian tournament, the Mar del Plata tournament, and in fact defeating him in that, in that crowning as they were competing for first place which set off what was going to be a series of games that they played to share there before they ever met at the World Championship. Mm-hmm. Coming off this period, Spassky switched his trainers and launched a absolutely colossal research in starting about 1961. While his early plays as a, as a youth, as a prodigy, was very much covered by incredibly aggressive uh, play, he became a lot calmer. He became a strategist. He broadened and deepened his style and became famous as probably one of the most effective all-rounder and universal players of his era and maybe even thereafter. He was capable of playing all positions, but being a Soviet tra- being trained in the Soviet school, he favored Sicilian defense and the uh, Spanish opening as well. But despite this having very much a calmer strategy, it really didn't affect the fact that he was also still famous for his aggressiveness and his tenacity, favoring a sharp attacking style. In 61, he went he, he won the USSR title for the first of what was going to be two times and proceeded to win a rash of primarily Soviet and Eastern Bloc tournaments over the next several years, including, uh, after uh, started winning those tournaments, competing again more internationally. Uh, one example being coming to the U.S. and playing in a tournament in Santa Monica, where again he ran into Bobby Fischer, and again he slaughtered him. By 1969, he competed in and was uh, fighting for the world championship and after overcoming all rivals, he was declared the world champion. And during the course of his tenure, both then and thereafter, he overcame six other world champions at different moments, everyone from Bobby Fischer to Gary Kasparov, uh, and developed what was viewed as a just an embodiment of a Soviet style of dominance that had remained pretty much unbroken since 1948, of just world champions straight up only Soviets throughout that entire period. It, it's an unrivaled period of a single nation dominance, and he was one of the representatives of a long legacy of that. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned, though, that during the course of his career, he played a certain Bobby Fischer several times. Now, a lot of people have heard of Bobby Fischer, uh, perhaps due to what was the name of that movie in the book, and that you keep referencing, tell me what it is. Searching for Bobby Fischer. <laughs> what everybody's heard of now. Well, to give a little bit of background on Bobby Fischer himself, he was born in Chicago in 1943. His mom was of Polish-Jewish descent, who had fled from first the Soviet Union and then France to escape anti-Semitism from Stalin the first time around, and then from somebody that you might have heard of called the Nazis that were invading France. She's a rather impressive figure in her own right. She was homeless when she gave birth to Bobby and raised two children as a single parent in the 40s and 50s, heavily engaging in both political activism and also forcing her way through to get a master's degree to become a registered nurse, all while being a single parent. Partly as a result of that drive, though, she certainly appears to have been a bit of an absentee mom, which had a bit of a profound effect on Bobby Fischer going forward. 
Notice I didn't mention his dad. Uh, dad was rather out of the picture, and in fact, was a rather unknown factor as to who the hell he was throughout most of Bobby Fischer's life, because Fischer refused to talk about it. Part of that reason may have been is that strong evidence, which essentially now been confirmed, indicates that his dad was a Hungarian mathematician, mathematician and physicist who was also of Jewish heritage. This was almost certainly not a surprise to Bobby <laughs> Fischer. Yeah. Bobby Fischer may have, you know, denied this and claimed throughout most of his early life that he was only uh, part Jewish from his mom's side. Um, but his dad wouldn't have been unknown to him because his dad provided child support throughout the entirety of his life and paid for all of Fischer's schooling up until the dad's death. So, well, we'll come back to Bobby Fischer and his questions about his Jewish roots, uh, roots here in a minute. But as a result of his mom being very much dedicated to her education and political activism, Fisher was really left alone throughout a large portion of his childhood, uh, left alone with his younger sister. And it's during this period that he largely self-taught himself chess, first from buying a chess set at a candy store, and then uh, when he was six years old, and then later just finding a book of old chess games that he just consumed for, uh, uh, viciously. He started to get some both national rec he started to get national recognition when at seven years old he decided that he was going to compete in a simultaneous chess champion uh, chess exhibition against a U.S. master, a Max Pavey. While Max Pavey slaughtered all of his other opponents, it took him a full 15 minutes to defeat this seven-year-old, which led to a large crowd uh, surrounding the table to wonder what the hell was happening. This led to uh, Fisher getting a lot of invitations from local chess clubs. We received direct, a lot of direct mentoring from several leading American chess masters. And it's from this training that uh, Fisher really starts to come into his own. Competing himself in uh, a massive simultaneous chess match in Cuba in 1956, winning 10 games and drawing two outright while playing 12 people at the same time. Wow. And even in this period of his youth, when he was still losing tournaments, his brilliance was starting to get recognized by everyone, including uh participating in what was dubbed at the time the Game of the Century, which the leading newspaper at the time referred to. The following game, a stunning masterpiece of combination play performed by a boy of 13 against a formidable opponent, matches the finest on record in the history of chess prodigies. Which was famous in particular because it was really fun to watch because he sacrificed a queen to then start a just unstoppable tidal wave of attacks that essentially broke his opponent down into tears. Very Beth Harmon-esque. Very much so. Uh, at 13 again, he decided to go from that moment to winning the U.S. Junior Chess Championship, which at the time, I believe still was the youngest, uh, 13 was the youngest player to ever do so. The next year, 14, he achieves the rank of master at the time, the youngest, the youngest person to ever do so, at least in U.S. history. A year after that, at 15, he decides, eh, what else am I doing? He competes in the 1957-1958 U.S. Chess Championship. Now, this was one of the toughest fields that had ever been assembled in the U.S. US championship. All, for, all, pretty much every list of former champion was competing. Some even six-time champions were competing. And so though uh, Fisher was recognized as a prodigy, it was assumed that he would come in about, you know, somewhere in the middle. Sure. Not only did he win, but he went undefeated against all of these former U.S. chess champions. He won eight matches outright and drew five against the finest the U.S. had to offer and became the youngest U.S. champion ever. That record still holds. How old was he? He was 15. 15, he's the outright U.S. champion. Wow. He's okay. dominating the field. From there, in what is a bit of an odd turn of events, he, he aggressively decided that he was going to go to Moscow. I presume just because he viewed it as the place where all the best, the best chess people in the world were. 
I mean, I guess that's, weird. that's true, though, right? I mean, it's... In a showing that his mom, though a bit absentee, was still very much dedicated to her son, she personally wrote a letter to Khrushchev so as to get Khrushchev to give permission for her son to go, and then arranged with the game show I've Got a Secret for her son to guest star on it and receive as his payment two round-trip tickets to the Soviet Union so that he'd have to bring his sister, like any good brother should, to the Soviet Union. It's an odd trip, but I'm sure they enjoyed it. The Soviets, <laughs> under instructions of Khrushchev, decided to treat um, Bobby Fischer as their very much honored guest. They even assigned an international master to serve as his guide the entire time that he was there. Unfortunately, Bobby Fischer, being a little shit, decided to start issuing demands from the moment he got off the plane. Oh. First being is that he wanted to go to the uh, Moscow Central Chess Club and to play the best players that they had to offer. They agreed. He went. He proceeded to play against two young uh, Soviet masters and proceeded to win in every single game he played against them. Again, he's all of 15 at the time. From there, very content with his own brilliance, he then demanded to play, who I mentioned, the Soviet world champion, Botvinnik, and was very annoyed that he was refused the right to play him. He also he got increasingly annoyed when the Soviets were only agreeing to really play him in unofficial games, because this guy was, from their perspective, virtually unheard of, and they weren't going to arrange tournaments to compete against him. He was just, you know, their guest that they're being nice to even let visit. This led uh, Bobby Fischer to declare publicly that the Russians were pigs, and he promptly just left the country. Which you might guess kind of rubbed the Soviets wrong, given that they brought him in as an honored guest and just let him tour the entire country with his sister. From there, I mean, this action with respect to the Russians doesn't really catch me off guard. It honestly surprised me that he even agreed to go, because Bobby Fischer's hatred of the Soviets was legendary. His resentment was just incredibly well documented and it appears to be driven at least in part of the resentment that he held for his mom. So though his mom had to flee the Soviet Union, she was, I will put it mildly, a communist sympathizer, perhaps, maybe communist activist. She was investigated mm. several times by the FBI. Um, and her absentee parenting towards him may have driven a certain number of his hatreds, including, as mentioned, possibly his feelings on the Jews. His anti-Semitism was profound and started early, at least certainly by the early 60s. He was very public on the fact of just how much he hated the Jewish people. And according to several people that knew him, utterly idolized, utterly idolized Hitler, of all people. Whoa. It only got worse later in life, in part driven by the fact that Bobby Fischer was, at his core, a deeply troubled and profoundly odd person. As said, he was... Very demanding, incredibly self-absorbed, but also, according to you know various armchair psychologists or proper psychologists that analyzed into him, may have suffered from some combination of paranoid personality disorders, schizophrenia, Asperger's, or just simply deep, profound childhood trauma that was never accurately documented. I've got a Cor diagnosis. What? Just an asshole. You know, I really appreciate you cutting through the crap. We don't need any of these labels. We don't have to bring the DSM into this. <laughs> just an, an asshole. asshole. <laughs> yeah. Well, according to Reuben Fine, a, a psychologist and chess player who knew him throughout his life, some of Bobby's favor is so strange, unpredictable, odd, and bizarre that even his most ardent apologists have a hard time explaining what makes him tick, ultimately describing him as a troubled human being with obvious personal problems. What also fueled some of his hatred of the Russians was an incident that happened in 1963 of what became known as the Soviet collusion allegations. Uh, Fisher was competing uh, in the candidate round to get into the World Chess Championship. The way that works is that you essentially have to play all the best in the world to then earn the right to play the best player in the world. All the candidates compete to then engage in the final match. One thing that he became convinced of is that the Soviet players were conspiring against him. 
that they were quickly drawing their games they played against each other so that they could save energy to invest in him and ultimately defeat him. He threw such a shit fit that he wrote articles in Life magazine on the subject that he even got the International Chess Federation to change their rules to adopt a kind of one-on-one knockout match that was almost custom-tailored to his talents and led him to just wreck shop when he competed again in 1970. Now, after he left the Soviet Union, he kind of just toured Europe, defeating people at various turns, becoming the youngest grandmaster at 15. Again, Boris Basky was the youngest at 19 when he did it. It dropped by four years when Bobby Fischer uh, got the title. He dropped out of high school at 16, declaring that you didn't learn anything there, and proceeded to teach himself a variety of languages for the sole purpose of being able to read chess periodicals around the world. This man was voracious and constantly reading every single chess periodical, every single account of game he could find. Remember I talked in the last episode that he was utterly dismissive of uh, women players, referred to them as just stupid and dumb and not even worth a note? Yep. Didn't stop him from reading every single published female game that he could find at all times. To the point that uh, a comrade of his one time jokingly asked, hey, have you read the games of this, uh, this woman player? Expecting that he'd never even heard of her. Not only had he read all of her games, he expressed that he didn't particularly like her style and recommended that the guy read the games of a different female player that he much preferred. He was described as being utterly intimidating because no one understood how he could find the time to be as just constantly dedicated to chess as he was. We start to now enter a period of where Bobby Fischer ascends from just being really damn good to practically superhuman. One of the expressions of that comes in his continued play in U.S. chess championships. Turning to the U.S., he competed in the next seven U.S. Championships, U.S. chess championships and won every single one of them. In the 63-64 game, he actually went entirely undefeated, winning every single game outright with no draws. In fact, he only lost three games in all eight chess championships that he competed in. His final total was 61 wins, 26, 26 draws, and three losses. His eight U.S. championships, I believe, is entirely unrivaled. From there, he started to compete more against the world, and this is where he started to get world recognition. It was first in what was referred to as the USSR versus the rest of the world tournament. This again just shows how utterly cocky the Soviets were, is that they put on tournaments saying, hey, every best player in the world, come play our assembled USSR team, we'll still defeat you. And they would. It's like us in basketball. Pretty much, yeah. Non-stop dream team. The world team lost again to the Soviet Union in 1970, but Bobby Fischer notably defeated his Soviet opponent 3-1, three, three points to one, not losing a single match. They drew the last two games. This put him on the Soviet Union's radar, so much so that when he later that year when he competed in the World Championship of Lightning Chess, which are five-minute games, really fast, uh, they sent a few ringers to purposely defeat him to try to, be- to try to break his confidence and humiliate him on a national, international scale. This didn't work. In fact, he won the championship 19, uh, 19 to 22, 19 of 22, only losing one game the entire tournament. He then went back to the U.S. and competed in a similar lightning chess tournament, and he won that one. Tw- of the 22 available points, he won 21.5 of them, winning 21 games outright and drawing a single game. This started a period of 1970-1971 where, in the words of one historian, Fisher dominated his contemporaries to an extent never seen before or since. He essentially ascended from being superhuman to essentially the divine, av- the divine avatar of whatever chess god exists, exists in the universe. 
That was embodied in his candidate play for the world championship title. 1970, he's competing again for the world championship. He proceeds to so thoroughly trash his opponents. Let me give you an example of one of the things that happened to one of them. The first opponent he played was um, Mark Timonoff, a well-regarded Soviet grandmaster and also exceptionally skilled concert pianist. Fisher defeated him 6-0, six wins, zero losses, and did so in such utterly humiliating fashion that when Timonoff returned to the Soviet Union, he was thrown out of the USSR team, forbidden from traveling for the next two years, banned from writing any publicly published article, deprived of his monthly stipend by the government, and ordered that he was not allowed to perform at any concert until further notice. That's how humiliated the Russians were by this. He wasn't done there, though. During the course of the candidate rounds, where, again, he's playing the best players in the world, he won 20 games straight. He went entirely undefeated in playing the candidate rounds to compete against Spassky, the world grandmaster. That's unheard of. The last time somebody had done that before him, it was, you know, Wilhelm Steinitz, uh, when he became the first world champion 90 years earlier. No one has done anything resembling that since. In fact, modern a modern analysts that are looking back at this period say that he had the highest single match performance rating ever recorded for any player at any moment in their career in the history of measured chess during this candidate tournament. Now, we discussed a bit of what Spassky's style was, and it's worthwhile noting Fisher's, but it's a bit hard to describe. Fisher was pretty much regarded both then and now as a universally skilled and powerful player, incredibly energetic with impossible preparation. One of my favorite quotes on his style was they asked a leading chess, uh, leading chess figure about what, he, what they thought about him. And he said, but I can't tell you about Bobby Fisher because perfection has no style. Wow. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the, about the, US chess, the uh, World Chess Championship in, uh, coming up here in the next episode, but it's important to note how the world view these two players going in. From a chess rating standpoint, Fisher was the indisputable favorite. At that point, he had a chess rating of 2,785, which would put him today at practically the number one player, number one and number two. What's notable, though, is that Boris Batsky had the second highest chess rating at 125 points lower. Wow. So from a pure mathematical standpoint, it looked like Fisher was an obvious um, favorite going in. However, history of the two of them playing each other suggested otherwise. At this point, they had played each other five times. And Fisher had, had never once defeated Spassky. In fact, he'd lost three times and drawn two. Various accounts indicating that he would actually angrily publicly confront Spassky after some of these victories about how he could be defeating him. The chess championship was rapidly referred to as the match of the century, a symbolic confrontation between superpowers. So much had been politically invested in this championship that Henry Kissinger would personally call up Bobby Fischer to encourage him to compete in it and encourage him to keep practicing so that we could, the U.S. could defeat the Soviets. So much we, the U.S. had such of a chip had such a chip on its shoulder at this period that we were continually losing to the Soviets at chess that we were bragging that we were host to the first uh, world chess champion Wilhelm Steinitz, who was really German. But we were pointing out that he, well, after he became it, he became a naturalized U.S. citizen. So that totally means that we were the first U.S. chess champion. Nah, 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 nah. That's how much of a bruised ego we had on the subject. 
And it was, again, driven by a set that the Soviets had been world chess champions since 1948, and it just an unbroken style that looked utterly unassailable. The greatest hope the U.S. had was Bobby Fischer. And going into, going into this chess championship, it was entirely unclear who would prevail. And I hate to end on a bit of a cliffhanger, but I don't know how this next episode is going to resolve with respect to this chess championship. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil how history resolved until we know better of what, how the show is going to wrap things up. But I submit the summary of our players for your consideration, and I hope it will at least make it through the House floor. Wow. Um, the first Spencer's Wikipedia Spyro of the week that it ends in a cliffhanger. I don't know how to take this one. I think this one passes the House and it's in the Senate, but... I mean, you, you can't pass them through because it's a cliffhanger. So this is just this is just uh, in committee, and it will will get uh, continued consideration are, are, next week. I'm, I didn't I didn't even make it to the floor. I didn't even get filibustered. We're just in committee. Fine, I will accept this, and I will come back all the stronger with an intense lobbying campaign for next episode. Well, I mean, I don't know what they're voting on. It's not done. Not done yet. I mean, this is this is unprecedented, Spencer. You typically wrap them up. We got a, a cliffhanger for Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the week. What will happen? In the uh, the battle, of, what was the, the name of it? The the, the, the match of the century. I'm match pretty sure they had, of the century. There I'm pretty go. sure they had. I'm pretty sure Don King was at some point doing the marketing for this and was probably naming events too. Oh god, I hope not for both of the participants involved. They'd walk away with no money. Um, <laughs> Very true. Yeah. So yeah, th- this is a that's good, Spencer. I I knew at some point we would get Bobby Fischer and Spassky. knew it, I knew that would it was coming. It had saved to. it for the end. Uh, I do appreciate that. Um, yeah, next week it is a it is a let's get a ready to rumble situation. I mean, obviously Beth is gonna is gonna gonna come back. She's gonna try to to handle Mr. Burgoff uh, one final time uh, when we come back for the finale of Netflix Queen's Gambit here on Mangum Talks TV. Thanks everybody for joining us for this episode. I enjoyed it, Spencer. I enjoyed chatting with you about episode six. We'll be back for episode seven next week. In the meantime, go to MangumTalks.com. Check out our other pods: Mangum Reads, Pottering Around, Mangum Talks hoops mangum laughs got a bunch of pods they're all good stuff check them out thanks for listening we'll see you next week see you